0: Okay, so we have Mwazam with us today, and oh boy, he has been all over the world. He's been incarcerated twice. Gitmo was one of them, right? Guantanamo mm-hmm. Bay—they called Guantanamo okay, Gitmo—and he. I just watched a video of him where he is talking. Well, not just talking to one of his former prison guards, but the guy is staying at his house, <laughs> and the guy says. And I, I, I spotted this right away from watching what you've done online. The guy says, I felt like I was your friend as soon as I met you because of the way you carry yourself. You do radiate a peacefulness. Now, I do yoga and meditation, and I see it in people in that community. But you, do, do you do anything like that, or is this just a natural... Um. No, I don't do anything like that. I mean, I, it, it, my faith—my
1: faith teaches me to be in a particular way. I think that that's the aspect of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, my family would probably say I'm not that, as calm as, as as you may think. Yeah, um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, that's part of my nature.
0: One of his stories is going to include getting raided by over 150 police just at one time, which cost the taxpayers over one million pounds. So today, just to give you a little summary, we're talking, we're going to be getting into um, Bosnia, Mi Five, Afghanistan, Gitmo, <laughs> meeting world leaders, um, empowering the Muslim community, visiting prisoners, Syria war, getting in trouble again, <laughs> the media. Um, it is it is endless, and Mozam does have a book out as well, so. He's doing so much activist work. I asked him earlier, you know, what what would you like people to support? We're going to put all the links in the description box to his socials, to the book, and to whatever comes out during this interview. So huge thank you for coming on then. You're welcome, Sean. It's my pleasure. Where did you grow up and what was that like?
1: Uh, I was born and raised in Birmingham, though you may not know it from the accent. I know. Um, I went as a child to a Jewish primary school, and I think that's one of the reasons why I don't have the accent. Um, in my teens, I started to kind of connect with, uh, because I was targeted by, especially in the eighties, but uh, as, as many people were, were by, by neo-Nazis, racism, skinheads and stuff. How old are you? I'm 52 now. Same
0: age as me. Okay. So well, I knew, I know what you're talking you know, about you know the, from you know that the, period of time. It was know like it. Punk rock, skinheads, yeah. all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. So at school and
1: afterwards, um, there were fights with skinheads. And uh, we formed ourselves into a local gang called The Lynx, which was made up of young Irish kids, young Pakistani kids, young black kids. And our raison d'etre was to fight the skinheads. And and we did. And we beat them up and we got beaten up. And that's how we rolled at that time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, racism back then, there wasn't like this political correctness movement, was there? uh, you know, growing up in a northern town, gay bashing, and you hear about you know people running in restaurants owned by Pakistanis, mm-hmm. and, st- and the shops owned by the Pakistanis, and just it was Paki bashing. That's what yeah, they, packy yeah, 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 I got Paki
1: bashed, but the, yeah. th- the difference was the Paki bashed back, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's what it was, and and that's what <laughs> we were doing. We were happy. We were we were <laughs> proud of that of of the fight back. Yeah, um, neo Nazis walking up and down Stratford Road in Spark Hill doing the Sikh salute. Was normal. Yeah. We'd see it all the time. At APL, the anti packy League. We'd see it <laughs> all the time. Ta- Sometimes tattooed on somebody's, you know, forehead, uh, on a skinhead's forehead. So that was all part of the you know, the makeup of growing up.
0: So was that laying the foundation for the warrior spirit that we're going to see oh, come out? God, this? The warriors, the <laughs> warriors, the film,
1: the warriors, not the Warriors. Oh, and the wanderers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wanderers are predating it, but the warriors, if, when you say the film, the warriors, yeah. that was it. That was our, you know, we've got our colours, we've got our jackets, we've got our badges, uh, and that's how we modelled ourselves. <laughs> we did the same
0: thing. <laughs> we had a little, not like a gang like you hear now, knives and all that shit. We had a little gang called the Sweats, based after watching the Warriors. Oh, that was yeah. a classic. I mean, if you haven't seen
1: the, the Warriors, you don't know what you're missing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how were you at school then? Were you studious?
1: Um, sort of. I mean, on and off. My mother died when I was about six years old, so to, that kind of influence was was lost, and the support of um, my, my dad was was a banker. Um, he'd come he'd come in to, to the UK from Pakistan in the 60s. Um, I was sort of studious and on and off, but at school I got into a bit of trouble because of these, these gang fights. Um, and as time went on, after the gang fights, I started to search for an identity um, because in the midst of this, you start to ask yourself, are you Asian? Are you black? Are you Pakistani? Uh, are you English or British? Because these guys are telling you to go back home and my home is in Spark Hill in Birmingham.
0: <laughs> Were there any particular subjects you had an aptitude for? History. History. Classical studies. Um, and and I, I guess
1: I had, I had a bit of an aptitude for languages.
0: An aptitude for languages. Yeah. How many languages do you speak? I speak three fluently. Three. Which yeah.
1: ones are they? Arabic, Urdu and English. Arabic I learned and studied. Urdu I was, was kind of parents and English was, was a language I've always loved.
0: And tracing your ancestry back then, where mm. were you descended from? Which countries? Um, well, my parents come from Pakistan, which
1: was originally part of India. And they themselves, uh, my father... Um, said that we are descendants of Genghis Khan we have a we have a family tree that goes back at least 300 years to the great Mughals the great Mughals and the Mughals are descendants of the Mongols
0: yeah yeah. yeah okay so you're going through school bumping heads with the Nazis did you set your sights on further education or did you have any career goals
1: um, no, I started working. My father was an estate agent at the time, but you know, he finished banking and I uh, started working with him for a while. And an then, estate agent? Is that like real work. estate then? Yeah, 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 property. exactly, yeah, yeah property. So what was your role there? My role was kind of more being officious and, go, um, and you know, going to properties, measuring them, making particulars for them and, and stuff, and then trying to get them sold off to different buyers.
0: Okay. So life is going plain sailing for you at this young age in your 20s. Mm-hmm. And then what happened then in relation to Bosnia? So I'd started studying law.
1: Um, this was around 1990, 1991. I was working for the DSS back at that time as well. I'd, I'd finished the job with my dad. And um, uh, it was a time when I was kind of rediscovering who I was. And uh, that was connecting to the, my identity as a Muslim. I didn't know that there was an indigenous country of Muslims in the heart of Europe, blonde-haired, blue eyes, no idea at all, until I heard, I think I saw it on CFAX, if you remember, was that the, the TEDx uh, thing that used to be on the on the TV, that there are Muslims in Bosnia being massacred. Um, so I, I met some of these guys that had come over as refugees, I spoke with them, talked to them and, and heard some really, really horrific stories. So I eventually joined a convoy that took aid, food and medicine over to those places and it was a it was a shock to to see i mean we we drove there literally by land and got there within you know two and a half days and it was the most shocking thing i've ever seen in my life all right just going back a second then how did you just meet the refugees so the refugees were coming to the mosques and to the islamic centers and so forth and you know there was a big aid effort at the time to to support these refugees that have come over from 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 bosnia and of course. Every, you know, the world was talking about what's happening. There it was a big conflict. Um, so, as part of my kind of connection or rediscovery of my own faith, it was to you know, it, Muslims aren't just brown people. <laughs> you know, there's a world of there's a world of black and white people who are all Muslims. You know, from Africa, from Europe, and, and that really attracted attracted me to it. Kind of
0: hearing about the atrocities, then were you apprehensive to go with and do the aid thing? Yeah, of course, I was, um, as anybody would be. But I also felt that
1: from the stories I'd heard, and the stories were shocking, including a woman who told me that she'd been gang raped by uh, Serb soldiers and her child had been killed. And uh, I'd seen these videos that that, uh, uh, somebody had gone there and recorded of the atrocities and people talking about what they'd gone through. And the shocking part was that this was happening whilst the United Nations were physically present. It was happening under their watch. And so I felt guilty and I felt a sense of motivation. And after listening to these people, I'm, I've got to do something. What was the scope of the atrocities you were hearing about? Uh, mass rape, rape camps, children having their throats slit because soldiers didn't want to waste bullets on them, um, ethnic cleansing. Um, and and of course, you know, the, the biggest thing that happened was the... Um, a massacre in Srebrenica of 8,000 men of boys, men and boys, um, uh, and it was the biggest war crime that took place after World War Two and the and the Holocaust. This was happening in
0: Europe. So we have a lot of young people watching the channel who may not be up on the history books. Who just just to give a little you know recap who was fighting who then what was it all about so what
1: you had is Yugoslavia the old Yugoslavia which was essentially under t- Marshal Tito uh, after he died it had been essentially communist but a different type of communism um, It Yugoslavia was made up of different republics including Slovenia Bosnia and Herzegovina um, Croatia and Serbia Croatia was Catholic Croats Serbia was Orthodox Christian Serbs Bosnia was made up of Muslims, Croats and Serbs And Bosnia is where all of that After that sort of communist government fell apart The different republics declared independence But in Bosnia, because you have all these three different groups um, Two groups had supports from Serbia and Croatia The Muslims there were just by themselves And people who were friends Muslims, Croats, Serbs
0: One day, literally the next day They were at each other's throats (sighs) That's heavy. Yeah, it's like in prison in Arizona, the gang with the most numbers always picks on the gang with the least. These racial gangs. Yeah, exactly. Whoever's yeah. I
1: think that's really that's an important thing because old um, kind of they're all the same race, right? So that they're all Slavic. They're all all of these Bosnian Serbs and Croats. They're the same people. It's just they have different faiths. And whilst the the Yugoslav government existed before, it was okay. But once they declared nationalism, oof, then it became, you know, I'm no longer your friend.
0: To get into Bosnia, did you need special clearance? No, no,
1: no, at all. There There were many aid organizations going. And as I said, the biggest thing was that the United Nations soldiers were there. The Pakistanis were there. The Bangladeshis were there. The Brits were there. The Dutch were there the Norwegians with it. And I passed with them, sat with them, spoke to them. Some of them showed me, some of the soldiers told me that they're really, really upset that they're not doing anything about stopping the atrocities. But yeah, you could go in quite easily.
0: What was it like arriving there? Take us through day one.
1: Um, First day, I think I came into the city of Mostar. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful city historically. It's been rebuilt again. And there's this beautiful bridge that goes over from one side uh, uh, to the other. And that was built by the Ottomans in the 1500s. That had been destroyed. All the buildings around you could you could drive through and not even see a single building without being filled with bullet holes or RPG, um, you know, rocket propelled grenades that destroyed walls and so forth. It was just beautiful buildings,
0: beautiful, beautiful countries, beautiful village destroyed. What's going through your head? Because, you know, you're thinking, right, I'm going to go over them, do the aid. I've heard these stories, but now I'm here and I'm seeing all this shit. Is it? Is it a whole new level in your head then? It of, of apprehension? Uh, it, it's all—it's—it's it's a multitude of different feelings. It's
1: fear, it's apprehension, it's shame, it's um, wonder, because it's beautiful. I mean, there's a beauty about Bosnia that I can't describe. Like, um, It's all of that it's mountainous, it's... Uh, and then, of course, as I said, there's that connection. I think, you know what? These guys are Muslims being killed. I don't kind of... They don't look like me, they don't speak my language, I've got really very little in common but i i feel i feel a connection
0: to them um and and it's that that kind of propelled me to try to do a little bit more so where were you stationed and what aid were you able to
1: administer so we were stationed in a, in a in a town called Ostrozats which is in the in a region uh, next to the city of Yablunitsa it was right next to a beautiful lake and we were distributing food medicine blankets uh, people, there was a, a center there uh, and we, you know, I, I I was happy to be part of this. They were People were happy to see people, uh, others come from different parts of the world to bring them aid. And, and it connected them to a wider world, as it were.
0: And did you hear the sad stories of the people you were helping? Too many, too any, many. Any that you could describe?
1: <sighs> I mean, I, I spoke to, you know, a couple of guys who were fighting at the fronts in a place called Konyets, and th- they told me how they had been, you know, facing off a, a, an onslaught by this, uh, the Serb Nationalist Army and they had been in uh, in the trenches and, you know, guys had been lying there in wait trying to defend their towns and they had got frostbite on their fingers and their fingers had to get cut off. I mean, that's just one of the multitude of stories. As I said, probably the one that stood, stuck with me the, the, the most w- was this woman that I'd met. She was a refugee to come to the UK and that she'd been gang raped. Um, that really, really killed me.
0: All right, so you're in the reality of the situation. sounds like you're getting deluged then with information from people who've survived atrocious things. Are you finding this a bit overwhelming at this point? It was, but as I said, I I wanted to do something
1: more. I I, I thought, you know, the aid effort, I'm listening to all of these, you know, one thing that you'd see is that the, the graveyards are full. Every day there are countless burials of women, of children, and so forth. So... I made a decision. There was a, a foreign volunteer force uh, of of the Bosnian army, or the Armija Bosanska, and they were accepting for, foreign volunteers to come and join to fight. So I made a decision that I was going to go and join them, and I joined them. Um, and it was it was a short lived experience. It was very short because it was in the winter. There was nothing going on, and in the end, I didn't stay very long. But I did meet a group of people who had. Um, you know, quite in a sense they had been deeply inspirational in trying to defend these
0: people who were facing genocide. Sounds like, oh well's the road to Catalonia, is it? Mm, well, yeah. Some people would call it that. <laughs> Did you get any training? Did you get a better rifle
1: and, and bullets or? Um it was just for a little while. I mean, it was a very short amount of time, so there wasn't there wasn't there was there were no action there was no action taking place. Um there was a bit of running around, a bit of, you know, press ups and sit ups and that sort of stuff and uh, military gear to put on um, but as I said I, you know for whatever for whatever reason uh, if I had come a little bit later in the spring I think I would have been part of the, the, the physical action
0: Did you see like corpses or anything on the roadsides? Yes of course Yeah, I did see corpses I saw wounded people I
1: saw people with their eyes shot at i see people put people with their legs blown off
0: um, yeah all of that Seeing all that then yeah Corp, like first time you see a corpse, how did that make you feel?
1: Um, you know, uh, you, you look, you stare, you imagine what that person must have been like, that person's life. You imagine how would you be if that was you,
0: and then you try to blot it out of your head. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, what ended your stay in Bosnia? Um. I. I thought that you know I need to go back home
1: to carry on the aid effort that I'd got been involved with, um, and so I then made numerous trips to Bosnia, like uh, back and forth, bringing aid uh, over. My stint with the with the army of Bosanska kind of ended, um, but I still had you know I still supported them. I still talked to them every now and then, um, and I kept on taking aid convoys over. I think even until after the war.
0: Wow. Did you have any close calls then on those missions? Um,
1: n- not, not kind of, not from a military perspective, from being on a, on the road in, in a high, in a high mountain in Bosnia, near, near, near a place called Travnik. Uh, yeah. My van nearly went off the edge of the of the cliff because we didn't have our snow tires on. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you save that? Um, it, it just happened. I wasn't driving. Somebody okay. else was driving. I, th- I, I just, I, I heard the guy shout out, that's it, we're going over. And uh, we were loaded with AIDS. So we were heavy, going downhill. And uh, there's no barrier. And I
0: thought, that's it. So I
1: started to, to utter what's known as the, 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 the Muslim last declaration of faith, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, that's it, it's done. Um, but but Your
0: adrenaline must have gone through the roof.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. I don't think I've even shared that story with anybody before.
0: Were you cheering when he when he when said when the truck didn't go over? Uh, I, no, just just
1: breathing. <laughs> <laughs> just breathing, <laughs> breathing.
0: A <laughs> sharp relief of breath. <laughs> so, was it these missions that put you on the radar of MI5? No, it wasn't.
1: Um, it, it wasn't. I thought it was, but it wasn't. It was something much later at 98, 99. Uh, I opened an Islamic bookshop. Uh, it was part of my I guess I'm rediscovering who I was um which I felt had to be connected to learning. <clears throat> and um I got to know somebody who who was uh arrested in the Emirates tortured and forced to sign a confession that he's part of an extremist group. This is before 9/11 and MI5 came to my house about him. Oh. At Six o'clock in the morning, and this is really important because the guy who came to my house is a particular agent. He called himself Andrew. He turns up to my house with a guy from uh, with two people with a guy from a special branch. He's different to the others. The other two are, are like, I like coppers, yeah but he's different. He speaks Arabic. He's white, blonde uh, um, blue eyed, and ginger haired, and he's different. He's he's intelligent, he, and he starts to talk to me about um, my friend. How do you know him? Um, who is he? Et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, that's the first encounter I have with these guys. And I don't see them again now for quite some time.
0: And, and I do see him again. And I'll tell you about that when we get to it. So the next is the Afghanistan mm-hmm. yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people have seen the lies that come out post 9-11 now that Tony bullshit speech, weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. I think generally people are hip to how the public was manipulated into kind of going along with this at the time in the West, even though there was massive protests against it. You know, it, it, it would be Iraq one. Um, these, these things still went ahead. Um, so what was your interest in this one? So in 2001...
1: Um, around the the spring, I decided to go with my wife and kids to Afghanistan. At the time, it was run by the Taliban. So people do ask, oh, so why would you do such a thing and so forth? So my, my, my response is quite simple, is that I wanted to, as part of the educational process that I wanted to impart people to people about, um, you know, from my, what I was doing, my bookshop and stuff, um, we helped open a school in Afghanistan, um, especially a girl's school, which, you know, people said the Taliban won't allow female education, but they did as long as it wasn't a kind of a Western quote unquote, um, uh, syllabus. So we prepared it, we set up the school and it was already up and running by the time I went there. So that's part of what I was doing there. Um, and continued to do so happily. Um, I came across a few things that I, that, that was shocking. Like uh, what? I was driving around Kabul <coughs> city center one day. Um, what a way to start a story. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, As I came to the center, I see like crowds. There's a crowd around this roundabout. As I get close, I I stop the car because I can't get through. So I walk and I join this crowd and I see like there's four people. And each one of them is hanging off a crane that has been left at the end. And it was a pretty shocking thing to see. Um, These four people have been executed, apparently for setting off a bomb somewhere. And, And that was kind of the harsh justice that existed around in this place.
0: So they've been executed by the government or by the Taliban? The, or? The, the government of the Taliban. The government of, that's right. It was yeah. The Taliban running the country mm-hmm, at that mm, time. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you mm. must have become hardened from Bosnia now just to see this stuff. And it it, it wasn't,
1: I, I, no, I'd never seen anything like this. Okay, uh, And I, I can't say how you could ever harden to something like, like this. So yeah. no, I, I, it's shocking. It's a shocking thing to see. Of course it is. Um, mm. uh, but it's just an ex- a reality you accept that this is what's going on here. This is a this is a different world that you're in, um, and I guess I, I remained there and uh, tried to do whatever I could to do to try to say to change the situation, in little bits and bobs through aid through education, which is what I was I was I was doing.
0: So, prior to the invasion, then was it easy to deal with the Taliban and ha- you know have them to authorize what you wanted to do? Uh, well, they didn't stop the school which was a plus because the crucial thing was they, they weren't
1: from what the media had said, they're not keen on female education, but we had a girl's school running with buses, picking them up and dropping the kids up, dropping them off and stuff like that. Um, the the Taliban were like anybody else, they're human beings that they're born out of a war, uh, 40 years of war, 30 years of war prior to that with the Soviet Union, stuff like that. There's all sorts of corruption. These guys are strict, they're hard line. but many people accepted them because they brought about security. Um, at the same time, there was something else going on. Uh, you know, Osama bin Laden's down in Kandahar, which is down the other side of the country, and they, they you know, there's stuff going on with him. And of course, when the September 11th happens, uh, they refuse to hand him over uh, to the Americans, which with whom they have no treaty anyway. And that is where my story of you know the real kind of story begins: the invasion of of afghanistan
0: so i've I've tried to read up as much about this as possible and i've you know watched people like david Icke talk about this stuff as well and um you must have so much expert knowledge that i really feel privileged that i'm able to, to pick your brains on this so my understanding is from what i've tried to learn is that osama bin laden was like a u.s asset against the russians and the whole family, you know, were, were America were on their side. But yeah. then it flipped because of they needed a the pretext to do these invasions. Is is that... I
1: wouldn't call Osama bin Laden an asset, though I would say they were definitely on the same side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, against the Soviets, yeah, that, yeah. That's right. There was the whole movement of the Mujahideen and fighting the Soviet Union and so forth. um of course that the americans brought in the stinger anti-aircraft missile system which is that's what changed the war so this uh, this stinger knocks out all of these mi-25 uh helicopters they're called the devil's chariots they're like they've really they've got a, an arsenal of rockets and machine guns and god knows what and the afghans they can't they can't bring these things down but they are natural fighters they are natural fighters i mean i can tell you that for a- anybody can tell you this.
0: Yeah, remember what the... Was there a UK invasion hundreds of years ago? Yeah, there was a and they, they allowed like... One guy to survive. You know it, right? What,
1: what's that story? Tell... tell. That's the story. I, I don't remember all the details. I think it may have been the third, the third Afghan war against the British and the British tried to... Uh, um, I think Churchill had been there at some point as well. You know, he, he had his finger in there as well somewhere. Uh, but this... Out of, I think, 10,000 soldiers over a period of a couple of weeks, the Afghans raided over the, over the Khyber Pass which is now between Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, this British force. uh, And eventually, only one person survived. And he was left to tell the tale. The Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan. And America now, as we're speaking today, they are negotiating with the Taliban. And not just the Taliban, five Taliban members, senior members, who were held with me in Guantanamo. Wow. Yeah.
0: All right, let's go over to 9-11. So I started trading the stock market as a young person. I was trading not just shares but options. In America, I was a stockbroker, so I had a Series 7 license. I also had the branch manager license and the options principal license. So in the week before 9-11, options on airlines, basically betting airline shares were going to go down the trading volume just went through the roof. This was my wake-up moment as to how my bubble world of thinking how the world worked was just completely destroyed. So it's on the news then. After 9-11, these options trades. It's headline news. The clip's still on YouTube. It says, this has to be terrorist insider trading. We're going to, you know, track these guys down, and they're going to face the consequences of their actions. And it gone, disappeared out the news. Um, Years later, I think I was in Arizona jail. Perhaps it was the David Icke book. Well, this has been confirmed now by numerous other researchers into this. Um, those trades were indeed traced to a brokerage that was run by CIA. Um, and anybody involved in those trades was interviewed by the feds and deputized, which meant if they ever spoke to anybody about it, they would be thrown in prison. Well, So they put out a conclusory uh, report from the investigation saying there was, the tr- there, was there was no abnormal trading, and they just tried to justify it for all this bullshit. But I read the whole thing. Um, but because I'm an expert in options, I could see through all that. So... In my mind, I'm convinced that not only did members of the U.S. Communi- intelligence community um, know that it was coming, they profited from it. I mean, I don't know the details about that. What I, what I do know, I mean, what I
1: do know is, of course, they knew something was coming. That, that's a fact. And they knew something was coming is because Al-Qaeda had made threats against the United States before. Um, they'd been hits in Nairobi, the, the, the U.S. embassy in Nairobi, in Dar es Salaam, in in uh, in Tanzania, so th- America knew something was going to happen. To what extent? To how much? I-, I just don't I don't know. But of course, something was going to happen, and there's simply there's there's no doubt, there's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, um, I-, I don't subscribe to the theory that the Americans kind of that it's an inside job. I think it's much more complicated than that,
0: um, but. Yeah, their intelligence told them something's going to happen, for sure. Because there's so many different factions, isn't there, mm-hmm. in intelligence <coughs> and in the federal government and the state <coughs> governments. and So, that yeah, I understand the complexity thing. So, all right, so you've got this thing that happens, 9-11, that's then immediately used as a pretext for these invasions. Mm-hmm. And how's this affecting you then, these invasions? Well,
1: gosh, I was in my house in Kabul so we lived in the city center, city center in Kabul um and i can't remember the date exactly but i remember this no 9/11 already happened people were already talking about um uh you know the us may strike osama bin laden Now, bin laden is in the, is in kandahar which is like you know it's like from here to scotland <laughs> where i was you know it's it's a big distance so th- i didn't, i didn't get the sense that they're going to strike kabul but i was wrong because they did they struck everywhere and the first thing that happened was the cruise missiles, the the Tomahawk cruise missiles. And I th- I can't remember where they came from first. It might have been from Uzbekistan up in the north, but later they came from Pakistan. They came from both ends, and uh, they started landing. And I felt the shock wave of these cruise missiles. They hit some Taliban positions up on the hill. But you, you can I mean it's a, it's a strangely cathartic sound that you hear, right? Not the not the explosion, but the aftershock and the aftershock of the windows smashing of all the houses simultaneously and uh, terrifying of course, but that sound is the one that oh, remains. I'm getting goosebumps. I took my kids, my wife, next door neighbor's kids, their wife into a cellar. We boarded up everything as much as we could, had mattresses, put mattresses, thinking, I hope and pray that no, sh- no missile lands on my house. Cause if it does, this, this place that we're trying to save ourselves is gonna become our grave. But we were fortunate. And how long did that go on for, all these bombings? Um, for a little while. We evacuated like the same day, the next day. The next Where day, did we you go? Out. We got out to a place called uh, uh, Logar, which is uh, just about a mile or so out. And then from there, eventually I evacuated to Pakistan uh, with my family. Although I did get separated from them for a few weeks, which was in itself a really shocking, uh, difficult period of time. But I did eventually meet up with
0: them did that end the humanitarian stuff you were doing in afghanistan yeah yeah the school was
1: hit the school was destroyed
0: mm. um and you know
1: thousands of people were killed thousands of killed collateral uh, damage yeah in fact there's one bomb that i learned later i, I remember the the shockwaves of these bombs this bomb landed miles and miles away not not like the tomahawk cruise missiles it's called the it's called the daisy cutter Mm. And it is a 15 thousand pound bomb it, it's it 's not the biggest bomb now now they 've got a which, a twenty two thousand pound bomb which Trump used um in his war but that fifteen thousand pound bomb when it dropped you could feel it 's like an earthquake uh, and I saw the crater that it created it was, it was it was like a i don 't even how to describe how big it was
0: um, but that 's the type of coordinates they were using in Afghanistan. And, you know, years later, I think it was the BBC that went on to report at some point there was like half a million dead in um, Afghanistan and Iraq, collateral damage, more than half of them women and kids. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't stopped, to be honest
1: with you. That, 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 that was the, that was all of that. Then later afterwards, they, they started what's known as the drone program. So it's a targeted assass- assassination where they literally send up drones and those drones strike people based on intelligence or dodgy intelligence. And it doesn't matter who they kill because...
0: It's just the, the the people operating say it's just like a video game. What's it called? Um, collateral Murder, Julian Assange video. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. And yes. They're just like joking around and yeah. stuff, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to Julian, uh, Julian about this before he's incarcerated, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's just it's just a it's a game. It's obscene, isn't it? So, what then was the reasons that you believe? The U.S. invaded those countries. What was the what was the real reasons, not the bullshit that, that Tony Blair was trying to make us believe? You know,
1: I'll tell you this much: Afghanistan. They may argue because Bin Laden was there. They may argue that Al Qaeda was connected to it, and they, they could argue that. Okay, though that's not a reason to invade an entire nation. That's not a, a reason to kill more people in like two days than we were killed on, on, on September the 11th. Like that's that's doesn't make sense, and it it's not justice either to. You get the people who did it, but you don't get everybody else. That doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you what happened. The invasion of Iraq only happened because of the invasion of Afghanistan. And Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Nobody in Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. And I'll tell you about what happened, if, if you let me, with, with, this, with this connection. So after, after I had been captured by the Americans, and I'll, I'll tell that story later, but I was held in a place called Bagram, which was a torture facility. The CIA and the FBI, they sat with me in an interrogation. They said, if you don't cooperate with us, we're going to send you either to Syria or to Egypt. Could okay. you first describe how you were captured? Yeah, sure. So I'd evacuated my family. We'd got into Pakistan. I still have relatives there and so forth. And we remained there, you know, trying to help other families and so forth um, that are leaving. Still hoping that our school's still open. But then I found out it's been destroyed. Uh, 31st of January, midnight. 2002 about to go to sleep bang 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 on the door i'm in pakistan in in, in islamabad in the capital i open the door there's a whole load of people there not a single one of them is wearing a uniform nobody's showing me any id they storm in i see a taser crackling in the background and a handgun it goes straight to my head straight to my head i don't i don't even have time to react i would i, I wouldn't know what to do if i'd If I knew how to react, I wouldn't know how to react. Uh, So I just comply. Gun to the head. They push me onto the ground. Now, nobody says a single word. Everybody's silent. They push me onto the ground, shackle my hands behind my back, shackle my legs, hood over the head. Pick me up into the back of this vehicle. The last thing I see before they they, they put the hood over my head is they're going into my house. My wife and kids are in there. At this point, I don't know who these guys are. Pakistan's got all kind of bandits and robbers and stuff. And that's why I think who they are. Are You think it's over? I think it's, yeah. I said, please don't go in there. They took me into this vehicle. Somebody lifts off the hood off my head. I'm in the prone position. Two guys in the front. (laughs) They look really funny because they're they're white guys. They're, They're like, you know, they're dressed as Pakistanis but they're not fooling anybody. And they speak in American accents and they say, you can either answer our questions here or answer them in Guantanamo Bay. And then, uh, what was your response? Um, then one of them says he, pr- he produced a pair of handcuffs, you know, and he cuffs my, my hands are cuffed by, by those, you know, those plastic cuffs that they use, oh, you know, yeah, the, the ties. Yeah, yeah. The ties. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're already cuffed with those. He brings in a pair of handcuffs and he cuffs my already cuffed hands. He says, you know, these cuffs were given to me by my wife's friend who died on September the 11th. And That's I said, your fault, of course. And I said to him, wouldn't she think you were stupid for catching the wrong guy? <laughs> in my prone position there, I'm telling you. <laughs> Good answer. And... Uh, um, You know, since then, I've discovered who that guy is. I actually know who he is. I've I've discovered through a whole series of (laughs) investigations who that guy was. Um, But yeah, that was it. Then they took me to this place, this this secret place, Pakistanis, um, holding me, but the Americans interrogating me. After the next couple of weeks, they hand me over to to the American military, uh, and that's when I become a prisoner of the U.S. military.
0: So was Pakistan complying reluctantly because the Americans were just... Flexing and throwing so much money around That's exactly what the Pakistanis That that is verbatim what the Pakistanis told me They they said to me, listen
1: son We know you've done nothing wrong here You're legally in the country You're not wanted for anything But if we don't cooperate with the Americans The Americans are going to strike us hard Wow So first day in captivity Um, So they take me From Pakistan Hooded, shackled and 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 they put me onto this C one hundred and thirty transport plane, it's a military plane. They they shackle my legs. They put a strap, a cargo strap, a strap over my lap, and and my hands are behind my back, and my head is hooded. And then there is a. a um, I can hear the sounds, the screaming of other prisoners. I can hear the roar of the engines. I can hear dogs barking. I can hear. Soldiers swearing in different languages. They you know, they've learned a few swear words in Arabic and Pashto and Farsi, and <laughs> all of this kind of, you know, cacophony of, of noise happening at the same time. And uh, so this is the first my introduction to the Americans, the good guys. Up until I've never been to America in my life, but America had come to me, and this is what I was going to now see. This was just the introduction uh, taken over from here to Kandahar airport, which the Americans had taken over. Now they built a makeshift base and it was brutality from the get go. I mean, as soon as we get there, I'm dragged through the mud. It's cold. It's, it's, it's cold. It's in winter, dragged through the mud. Two soldiers sit on top of me, literally sit on top of me, one in my small, on my back, one on my head, like that, his knee down there. I feel a knife knife from my trousers, slicing off my clothes, then going to the back, slicing, slicing, off my shirt and everything, and naked as until the day I was born, dragged into this little area where there's lots of soldiers, lots of spot, spotlights, photographs, trophy photographs, dogs barking. Um, they spray us with this kind of de lousing stuff or something. Seemed really weird. Um, and then shackled. Uh, and and just before, just after that, zzz, my facial hair hair on my head all shaved off and, and uh, it's happening to every single prisoner and then taken into this tent where there are two FBI agents they've got FBI caps on in, in this tent in the, in, in, uh, and uh, they asked me when's the last time you saw Osama bin Laden? Oh, God. when's the last time you saw Mullah Omar the, the leader of the Taliban? I said um, never oh you speak English? I said yeah how come? I said, because I'm from England. That's what they speak there. <laughs> uh, and he said, whoa, where are you from? I said, I'm from Birmingham. <laughs> I'm standing here, nothing on, shackled, right? And this guy's asking me, where am I from? I said, I'm from- oh, that's near Stratford of Avon, the home of William Shakespeare. I've been there. I've been to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company and seen a play of God knows what. And I'm thinking I'm having a talk about Shakespeare in this tent here with these guys mm. who are about to torture me. Um, but yeah, and then after <laughs> that, I put on, they put on the, the kind of the, the infamous signature orange jumpsuit of Guantanamo. And then I'm taken into this place, which is a barn converted into a holding cells that, that with razor wire. So we've got razor wire divided, that's dividing me and the other prisoners. And, and I'm there for the
0: next few weeks. I was in that same orange jumpsuit, like radioactive orange, in Supermax in that Florida. So tell me, do you you remember the name of the person who makes those suits? Oh, I don't know, but I've googled it since, and it comes under correctional clothing online. Okay, because I bought some online. I've got some. Oh, really? Okay. Were they two piece? The two pieces, or it was so. I I started out in the orange jumpsuit, the actual jumpsuit, full jumpsuit. Okay. Yeah, 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 but uh, so in the Roman jail you're in black and white striped, um, like a top and trousers. Yeah. After your time in your orange jumpsuit in the prison system, you get orange trousers and an orange t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, so and deck shoes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. So this was that was so in
1: in the beginning, it started off as as different colored jumpsuits. It was blue and orange, right? But then. When we became, when we went to Guantanamo eventually, which was, I went to Guantanamo after a year, I was held in Kandahar and Bagram. And I'll tell you about some of the, the atrocities I witnessed there. Um, and so eventually they did give us those very same things. The reason why I asked you the name, because the name is ingrained in my head, it's Bob Barker. Really? <laughs> he's the guy. He's the
0: guy who made those horrible. He's making uh, all suits. that money off exactly. human it's suffering. Exactly. Bob Barker. <laughs> Bob Barker. <laughs> all right. So you've described how you got there. What
1: happens next? Um, so, yeah, I'm in this place in Kandahar for about three weeks or so. Uh, you know, they, they they give us buckets. Can
0: you, can you sleep? Is it What's your sleeping no, situation? No, it's
1: very, it, it's impossible to describe. I mean, it, it is like the most shocking thing I can describe. I can't, I, I can't, I've never experienced anything like it. And I've been in war zones. You know, I've never experienced anything like it. The lights are on 24 hours a day, floodlights. The guards are constantly shouting. Is it a dorm? No, it's not a dorm. No, no, it's, it's they, they've built like, Makeshift tents out of wood, and I'm in the barn, which is made of metal. But other prisoners are in this these wooden tents, right? And and they're kind of more dormish, but everybody sleeps on the floor. So you're on the floor, no bunks? (laughs) No, on the floor, on on the mud. On Um, the mud? Yeah, on the mud. Um, Do you have like a mattress? They give us a little mat, like you know, like a yoga mat. No, it's one of those camping mats. You know, those 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 thin camping mats. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we've got that and a bucket, a bucket for slopping out toilet. Yeah. What um, about the food? The food is something called MRE, meal ready to eat. It's a US military ration pack, but they take everything out from it. If you've ever come across these things, they've got loads of nice little, uh, you know, um, uh, things in, in addition to it, uh, condiments and stuff. But that's all gone because we could use the spoon as a weapon. We could use the Tabasco sauce as something, throw it at somebody. So everything's gone except this little packet, this cold packet of food. And you just use your teeth to to rip it open to eat it with. You didn't even get a spork. Not even a spork. <laughs> Not even a spork. No, no, I know. We did later, much, much later. But at this time, everything was a weapon in their eyes. They, they, they had just in the minds of the Americans, they had just caught the world's most dangerous terrorists. That's how they viewed it, viewed us.
0: So, are you allowed to talk to the other prisoners? No. No. no, even sneakily I have We do, of course, we, do. we always do. We always whisper, you know, like that. But Did you, you learn were the, the, the backgrounds of the other people, what they really were? Yeah, there's
1: different people from all, all over the world. And, and, you know, I can talk about that in a minute. But one of the reasons why, why you, you, they kept you in a state of fear in the beginning is you've got a guard pointing a shotgun or an M16 at you at any given time of the day. And if they think you're moving or, or, or doing something in the wrong way, you, you hear it straight away. Straight away, you hear it. And I heard that sound so many times. I I don't think I'm, I I don't even think I'm afraid of it anymore. Mm. That's how often I heard it in
0: the early days. What about having a shower? Were you allowed to? No, there was no showering. No showering. Did you have access to water? Could you have a bird bath or anything?
1: Um, They did give us a 500, you know, one of these, a a bottle, a 500 milliliter water bottle uh, a day to drink from. Um, But that was it. There was no. If we wanted to shower, it's going to be such a humiliating process that you don't even want to do it. So it's just, uh, y- y- you don't
0: do it. Any degrading strip searches yet? Oh, God, I can't even describe them. Horrible. Mm. I mean, y- you know, you must have been through them. I'm lucky because they just reeled the finger wave on Constitutional Arizona whereby really? rubber gloves and finger yeah. in the bomb from the guard. Yeah, well, that that's standard. That, that, that is standard. And that and, and far worse, far, far worse
1: um i i i can't even describe some of the stuff that that stuff
0: all right so i imagine that you guys are like dazed confused the uh, you know the arrestees are like what the fuck has just happened one minute we had a life next minute we're all in here guns pointed at us being treated like animals yeah what was the next level that you went to after all that uh from there so then they
1: moved me to a place called Bagram and Bagram is is like the <coughs> it's an, it's a big air base that the americans had built they'd taken it over from the taliban and uh um the americans were there the brits were there um and it, it was a bigger facility a little bit more permanent they it was a russian old russian warehouse you, really you know we talk about afghan and, and how tough they are the russians had built this place just before they got defeated or just you know uh, and they're left here and now the next superpowers come and so you can see all of, all of this stuff in, in russian and And they're taking me to these different parts of this huge building for interrogation. Um, In Bagram, I was held for 11 months. And there's no natural light there. It's just floodlights. You don't ever get to go out, ever. Um, There's no hot food. There's no phone calls. There's no visits. There's nothing. There's just interrogators and screams. And in the area where you are, in a communal kind of area, you sleep on the floor. There's massive camel spiders, the most Terrifying creature I've seen I've pictures seen. of them online? Yeah. They're like the size of dogs? I can't describe to you. That's the most frightening creature I've ever come across in my life. Like, it is, it is scary. And for those of you who, who, who ever want to search this damn thing up, it's the only arachnid that has 10 legs. And the two at the front are not technically legs. They're kind of feelers, but they're big. And it is deeply aggressive. It is very fast. It has pound for pound the most powerful bite in the insect world. And I saw people bit by it. And I could not sleep at night when I knew those things existed. And uh, that was just one of them. There were scorpions. And, you know, the upsetting thing is that sometimes the soldiers would come along, the, the nasty soldiers, because they weren't all nasty, they'd come along and they'd throw them into the cells.
0: What was the bite wound look like? Um, it, I,
1: I saw one guy, his, 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 his flesh had been eaten away, literally. Um, it looked horrible. It, I can't even describe what, it, what that kind of wound looks like. But it's like a chunk of flesh has just been taken out, and, and then rotted away.
0: So, do they like aggressively do those things to humans, or is it just when humans are like pushed in the close to their environment? Yeah, yeah it's the latter. It's I mean, they won't just
1: ch- chase you, but you know, they're not scared. <laughs> those Arizona's not scared. got a
0: lot of dangerous insects.
1: I've heard that there are several of these particular spiders in the Mojave
0: Desert. Right, yeah, um we've got we had a whole variety of scorpions, wow, it was the tiny little ones that you could barely even see that're almost transparent, that caused the most harm, yeah, yeah not the big ones, not the big ones, yeah, here we had the big ones,
1: so they they look scary, but they're not as poisonous, yeah like you're talking about the really dangerous ones.
0: did you have cockroaches, mosquitoes? yeah, yeah all of those things uh, you know, are they pestering you throughout the night
1: yeah, there's even these ants we call them uh, in ants. Afghanistan they call them. Four by four and They're not like the tiny little things we have over here. Yeah, piss you ants, the column in, in Is that what they call <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <piss ants. laughs> These are huge. We call them four by four ants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had all of that. That stuff. big ants. Yeah, I mean, literally. I mean that big. Oh, that, that big. That, that, that big. big. Yeah, yeah that big. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Huge, Because um, the nature and the insect. Environment becomes a big part of your everyday life when you're trying to survive an environment like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. The things that you would normally reel from and turn away from and be shocked um,
1: fascinate you. Yeah. They are are a window to life, to other life, to normal life, uh, as you would know.
0: My writing was discovered by The Guardian because of my interactions with the cockroaches in the jail that I was writing about. Wow, that's oh well, yeah. All right, so you're in this new part now, where your people get interrogated. It's it's there's no natural light. There's just the mm-hmm. spotlights. Mm-hmm. Um, you can hear people screaming. Did they pull you out for, for intense regularly, regularly all the time? Could you take us through an interrogation? Yeah, I mean, uh, so they take you. They they ask
1: you to assume the position. This position would be that you lie on the floor in the prone position. Put your hands behind your back. Uh, lock your legs together, turn them up. They, ru- excuse me, they rush in, they shackle you from behind, they shackle your legs, they put a hood over your head. A guard locks his arm uh, on this side and on this side. You've probably seen this stuff, I'm sure, that with, with maybe, you know, different types of prisoners. And then you're in this, you're like this. Um, and uh, they take you off to the interrogation room. Uh, and in the interrogation room, it would be it would vary from military intelligence to the CIA to the FBI. And some I remember once somebody came from DEA. Do they always identify themselves as who, they, which yeah. branch of the government? Yeah, they are? pretty much do. But you, th- th- it's not like they show you a card. Yeah, you know there there are no rules here. This, there's no lawyer. Here. They can do whatever they want. Anybody can say whoever he he can say whoever he is, um, however he is. But remember, I told you that there was a guy called Andrew who came to my house yeah right in 98 or 9 so this was back in kandahar they take me into an interrogation i'm on my knees they put me on my knees my hands behind my back the gun towards my head in in the desert you know in this in this tent lift up the hood right in front of me andrew
0: that's when you first met him
1: that's the second time i met him first time he was in my house where i offered him a cup of tea oh second time you met him second time i meet him here in in here and he says, "Oh look, Mozam, look what you've got yourself into." I said, "Really? I did this to myself, did I?" And uh, the funniest thing is that you know, he sits me down and uh, he looks at the soldiers and he sees all that stuff on me—that you know, the shackles and the hood—is all that necessary? Yes. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so Andrew just goes quiet. Then he, he, you know, he puts on this table. He puts this Mars bar down. He said, "Look what I bought you all the way from England." I said, "Thank you, Andrew." But I don't like Mars. I never have.
0: <laughs> and then is it just the same old bullshit questions they kept asking? Yeah, so he you? comes. When's the last time you saw Sam? Yeah,
1: so he comes again. Andrew comes again. So Andrew comes. He, he's a spook, right? So he, he's he's haunting me. <laughs> and uh, so he, he comes again. But so do other people from different agencies. And I'm an English speaker, so I'm a commodity. You know, the majority of people here are Afghans and Arabs and stuff, and, and most of them don't speak English. But me, okay, I am. So everybody wants to talk to me. And that's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, So a year of this goes by. And the worst time is May 2002. I'm being interrogated by this very scary looking guy from the CIA who does not blink when he looks at me for a whole hour. He just stares, burning blue eyes right into my eyes. FBI guys around him, but this guy, he just just stares. And he's holding a, a, a rifle in his hand. And at the end of this, he says, Mozambique. He does that. Uh, I was like, I mean, that guy was damn scary. And what did that mean? The thumb down? To me, he said, then afterwards, after the FBI's guys had gone, he said, I've decided to send you to Egypt to be tortured. Fuck off. Yeah. Now, while this was going on, they take me into this next room. They tie me up again. And then they bring pictures of my wife and
0: children. No. Where were they at this point? And did they know where you were?
1: My, yeah, my family were at home. Uh, well, they had been at home. I didn't know what <sighs> happened to them that night. I didn't know what became of them. I had no idea, no, com- no communication. They bring those pictures, which they seize from my house. And then I hear the sound of a woman screaming in the next cell. And I'm terrified. I'm shocked. I don't know what's going on. And they start saying, you know, where do you think your wife is? Where do you think your kids are? What do you think happened to them? And I didn't feel any, I, I felt terror up until this point. This time now I felt anger. I wanted to take those shackles. I wanted to strangle him because I, I thought this is what they're trying to tell me. Um, so eventually, you know, they, they took me out and, you know, I started asking questions and, you know, people, some of the prisoners said, you know, we, we thought it was your wife as well. We thought we heard a woman as well. And so that was the rumor going around that, that, that you know, the prison is that my wife's being tortured. Mm-hmm. Um, Eventually, a soldier came up to me and he said, don't worry, your wife, it's not your wife. It somebody I trusted, I thought, as much as possible, he said, no. But I tell you this much, they are serious about sending people to Egypt and Syria because they already have done. When I got released, I found people and traced their cases and the people were sent to Egypt and to Syria. And you know, I was talking to you about the Iraq war, right? So in one of those interrogations, The CIA, those same CIA and FBI guys said to me, if you don't cooperate, we're going to send you to Syria or to Egypt, right? And we've already done that with a guy called Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi. That's crucial. That is so, so important. He was here sitting right in this seat with you, where you're sitting, and he didn't cooperate, and we sent him to Egypt. And he told his story within two days. They tortured him, they waterboarded him, they electrocuted him in Egypt, and he gave a false confession. That's his false confession was the reason why we went to war in Iraq. The false confession was that Al-Qaeda was working with Saddam Hussein on obtaining weapons of mass destruction. That evidence was taken by Colin Powell, presented to the United States Security, United Nations Security Council in 2003, and became the justification for the invasion of Iraq. Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi um, retracted the statement. They knew it was not true, but it became the, evi- it became the, the reason.
0: Which enabled the US to spend billions so companies like Halliburton and Cheney and the whole gang could just get rich at the taxpayer's expense and murder hundreds of thousands of innocent people. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely sickening, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know it's not your wife, but you're thinking, how can I get a line of communication open with my wife? Was there any means to do yeah, that? Yeah,
1: I mean, for oh God, uh, there was. Eventually, I think it was after about six months I'd been in Bagram and Kandahar. After six months, my wife had been pregnant with my youngest son, who I, I didn't obviously didn't know. You know, um, so the Red Cross, the ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, get, got access, and they did have sporadic access. They did come and have sporadic access with us every now and then, um, and they came and they gave me a little message. Uh, child-born, particular date in June, and uh, mother and baby well.
0: That was it. That must have made your heart just
1: go like... Yeah. I went back to my cell, covered myself with... Went to the cell, covered myself and just cried because I I didn't know his name. I didn't know where they were. I just knew they were okay and safe, Yeah. which was enough, I guess. Something even worse happened than... You know the, the the torture that I had in, in in May, and that was in beginning of two thousand three. They bring a prisoner in. They shackle his hand to the top of the cage in the front part, as they call it, the Sally Port, which is the area where they isolate the prisoner. And they tie his hand above above uh, to the top of the cage and hood him, which is what they used to do to all of us for periods of time. Sometimes, if they catch you talking or Doing something that you shouldn't be doing that's what they, they they do so this prisoner they did this to him and they left him there for days and they'd only unshackle him to go to the bathroom or to give him, let him eat but otherwise his kind of they wanted to break him that was one of the techniques they used so at one point he'd slumped like his head went down they opened the sallyport door and one of the soldiers like shakes him a little bit he doesn't move so he starts punching him in the ribs like repeatedly bang 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 and then they unshackle him, they take him upstairs to the interrogation rooms and I hear screaming Then I, a, a little while later I hear soldiers running around Saying he's dead I didn't know for sure if he's dead because nobody would say anything to me About several months later when I was in Guantanamo in solitary confinement in a tiny little cell Two CID agents come along Criminal investigation department, I didn't even know this existed in America, but they come along and they're different to all the, inter- the interrogators. This time they come along and they show me the picture of this guy who died that day. The first time they confirm that he's dead, there's a photograph of his body. Then there's photographs of the soldiers that were on duty that night. So here's the great irony. They say to me, Could you point out the soldiers that you think were involved in his abuse that you that you witnessed? I said, yeah, I can. This one, and this one, and this one. Would you be prepared to be a witness in a potential trial against these guys? I said, are you serious? I said, I've been held now for almost three years without charge or trial. How are you gonna take me to any court, let alone, you know, this one? How how are you gonna do that? So his story was told in a film called Taxi to the Dark Side which won the Oscar for his Best Documentary in 2008. And it's, called, and it's about this guy because he was a taxi driver, oh an innocent God. taxi driver that they picked up and they killed him. They beat him to death.
0: Because if you're innocent, you can't confess. But by not confessing, you're withholding information, so we're just going to torture you to death. Yeah. That's, that's what they've done to him. <sighs>
1: And and my understanding, you know, I've I've read all the documents about the case, it was a racist killing because what they did is that every time this guy was kicked, they used something on him, you might've come across, it's called the peronial strike. It's like a Thai boxing style kick that's delivered to the top of the thigh to to subdue a a, a prisoner that's non-compliant. Every time he was kicked, he said, Allah, Allah. So they weren't even torturing him for information. The soldiers found it amusing That this guy says this, so let's just see how often he says it. And they kicked him, I think, over a hundred times that night. And that the the report that the autopsy report says that his leg would have required amputation had he lived.
0: Oh, yeah. So it is a. And did he have a family and kids? Yes, he. Yeah, he did.
1: He did. He did. Uh, (sighs) And they didn't know for weeks what had happened to him. Jesus. So. What else happened before you ended up in Guantanamo? So, you know, after all of this, you know, literally, I, I wrote a little message to the Americans. I said, I've witnessed murder. I'm a witness to murder. And no matter what happens, I will never forget this. And I will try to, you know, do whatever I can so the world knows. But I was a prisoner myself. So I had no access to anything. They put me on a plane with a whole bunch of other prisoners, including senior Taliban telemem- members, um, hooded, shackled, uh, tied up with a three-piece suit. You know the three-piece suit, right? Um, for those, those who don't know, it's not what you're wearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Describe it. Describe the, the three piece suit. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's a handcuff which with chain going around your waist, and then there's the, the, another chain that goes from your waist
0: to your to your ankles, and that is the three piece. And that's exactly how they took us to court in Arizona. And when you're walking in the three piece suit, you do what's called a penguin shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, which is interesting, right? Because um,
1: when, when I when I eventually met a lawyer in Guantanamo, Clive Stafford-Smith, mm-hmm. this is the shocking part. I, I had noticed, whenever I'd look at the shackles, that it says made in England. I'd noticed this many, many times. And it, the company's name was Hyatt's. Hyatt's are based, or were based in Birmingham. <laughs> where I come from, right? Mm-hmm. So when I met Clive, I said, you know what, me, you, and... These shackles have in common. He says, what? I said, we were all made in England. <laughs> um, so is that just another contract profiting from all this? Exactly. And research it. And I did research it. Hyatt's used to make the collars, the quote unquote, excuse my language, the collars during um, slavery. We'll have to take that out because yeah. it's a violation that, of YouTube's. That, that's what they're. That's what yeah, they called yeah, to this yeah. to this day. That's yeah. the, the kind of the N word collars. Okay. Uh, for the for the escaped slaves who were renditioned back to their masters. So Jeez. that's where the first time when the the word the term rendition was used. So you know the connotations and the connections to all this are really really serious. And who owns Hyatt's? Uh, I'll tell you who owns them. I know who owns them. BAE Systems. Bae <laughs> Systems. owns I've, I've watched
0: those shows in the stock market. Yeah, yeah, big, big contracts, big, huge contracts, and, and and they
1: to this day they so they relocated in the US. They're doing in in America, of course. They're doing a
0: booming trade w- with with uh, um, shackles for prisoners. Even like the private prison contracts now are in the tens of billions a yeah. year. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> All right, so. You go out of the chip pan into the frying
1: pan then, yeah. do you? So by the time I've gone through all of this stuff, right, and when some of the soldiers, again, some, there were some good, decent soldiers. Out of all of this, there were still decent soldiers, soldiers who would do good things on the side, make sure, you know, when, when other people aren't watching, pass over a little bit of food, give you a little bit of information. They were always decent soldiers. And it's important that we that we make that clear. It's good and bad in every profession. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the... the they were from all black, white, Hispanic, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, all of that stuff. I didn't even know these terms, by the way, until I'd been imprisoned by the Americans. <laughs> and uh, so they told me, you're going to go to Guantanamo. And I said, you know, to be honest with you, I cannot wait to go to Guantanamo, <laughs> the world's most notorious prison, because after what I've seen over here, it's got to be better. And in all intents and for all intents and purposes, it was better than this. It was better. Um, not to praise Guantanamo, but. You know, this,
0: what gets worse than witnessing a murder, you know? So was that like Supermax, like an American Supermax conditions, Guantanamo? I mean, I don't know what Supermax is like in America, but I, I think this was worse.
1: And the reason why I say this is because I think in Supermax, you don't have military presence. And, and so what you had here, I wasn't held in a place called Camp Echo, where there were only two cells, me and another British guy, and they just built this new, And it was built, uh, you know, kind of chain link fence all around and uh, kind of uh, a green plastic sheet covering so you can't see anything outside. That's around the whole camp. Uh, And in the midst of that, they've got these two separate cells that are built. And in the middle of that, they've got this kind of so-called recreation yard. (laughs) Two cells only? Yeah, two cells. At that point, there were only two cells.
0: So you had yours and he had
1: his. And my cell is what? My cell is like a... I think it was an old shipping container, they say. It's cut in half. Uh, it's about eight foot by six foot. And that is inside a room. And that room, at any given time, has one or two guards that are monitoring you 24-7. And they're looking at you. And they're noting everything you do every 15 minutes.
0: You're still um, sleeping on the floor or you got a bunk at this no, point? No, it's a
1: bunk, but it's a metal bunk with a with a, 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 a small mat on there.
0: Yeah.
1: And you just watch 24-7. Did you have a combination sink-toilet? Yes, yeah. yeah, and when you press you press the toilet, button, it sounds like a like a jet doesn't. Sounds it? like it's gonna suck your bum off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like <Yeah. laughs> exactly <you know>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Never come across anything like that, but you know it's pretty effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then shower access. Yeah, so there's a shower connected to the other side of the cell that you don't have access to. But when you ask for, uh, at, no, sorry, at specific times you go to the recreation yard. And then they call it shower and wreck. Though I used to make fun of them, I said it's got to be wreck and shower because you've got to go to the wreck first and then the shower. Right? But you know, um, so yeah, you go out to the recreation r- yard, and the reason why I said it's harder than Supermax, well, my, my vision of it is in the beginning. This was the first few months. They take me out fifteen minutes uh, every three days. Every three days, I'll go out for fifteen minutes. They before they take me out to the recreation yard, which is just a fifteen by fifteen. Area that is chain link fence all around They have to call for infantry infantry, So a Humvee with a machine gun Fixed goes around and Is parked Then there are uh, something called the MWD Which is the military working dog That has to come along and there's a dog there Then three soldiers take you out Two of them get you shackled up And one of them Walks behind you with his piece Pointing at you just in case you do something I don't know whether Supermax is like that, but that's the process of taking you into the recreation yard. That's next level Supermax. And you can see me, I'm 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 a short guy. These huge giant American guys with their their bulging muscles and weapons. I'm thinking to myself, wow, how did I scare you so bad? Did you ever get used to having guns
0: pointed at you? I can't say I got used to it, but I think I, I got less afraid of it, yeah. Did you get used to the strip searches? Never. Never. It's so sort of degrading, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, like it's being impossible. Visu- visually raped. It's impossible. You, you can't, I, I, I,
1: I'm not a violent person, but if I would have been, I, w- I would have fought it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so you've got 15 minutes wreck every three days. Yeah. What did you utilize those 15 minutes? what did you actually do? So imagine 15, you've got 15 foot by 15 foot.
1: You run round and round and round and round and round for 15 minutes. Um, I think I worked out in my head that I, by, by the steps I counted, that I probably did about a mile and a half. But you know, you've got to change direction. You go twenty one way, twenty the other way. Every now and then, when the guards weren't looking, I'd climb up because the, the chain go the, the the chain link goes over your t- over the top, so you can't get over. You climb up, and I look out, and I can see the sea. <laughs> that is the Gulf of Mexico. That's what I can see. It's the f- only time I've ever seen, it, and I can see. And every now and then I can see a shipping tanker or maybe even a cruise boat. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Did that give you hope? All the time. <laughs> I used to dream about it. I used to dream about just getting onto a boat and then across the, sh- the ocean, go to maybe to West Africa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in your half of a shipping container cell was the space on the floor to like, do push-ups, yoga, anything? <sighs> Boy, Press-ups, I became an expert. Expert.
1: <laughs> Two fingers Commando press ups, one back armed, of the hands, one arm, all of them. <laughs> uh, an expert, an expert in press ups. Yeah. Did you do yoga or anything like that? Meditation? No, but because I'd done taekwondo when I was a kid, mm. I did some of those, some of the kind of stretching techniques. Um, my my spiritual side really was was connected to my Islamic faith. So kind of learning dispar- different verses of the Quran. Oh, Were and, you allowed to have a Quran? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I was. What a um, reading material? Oh God, Daniel Steel novels. <laughs> Um, uh, Reader's Digest books uh, National Geographics from the 1970s With all the maps taken out um, <laughs> I mean it's, it's hilarious It's hilarious um, And Charles Dickens British classics So I read, uh, I kid you not I read Bleak House David Copperfield And A Tale of Two Cities in Guantanamo
0: yeah, just whatever you can get your hands on, is To get yeah, your mind yeah, out of that yeah, cell. Yeah, yeah. But you said, so the Quran was the main thing for, for you. For me, it was because you. it
1: was really important. There's verses in the Quran. There's a story of, of Joseph or, or, you know, Joseph, Yusuf in, in Arabic. Um, he gets thrown into to prison for a crime he doesn't commit and he comes out of it much stronger. He comes out of it actually forgiving towards those people who did it, but he's forgiving because had it not happened to him, he, his voice, he wouldn't have been the person he was. Exactly. So I find that, it, it brings tears to my eyes every time I read that story. It's pretty much the same in Islam, Christianity and Judaism. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very, very powerful story for me. If
0: neither of us had gone to prison, we probably wouldn't even be speaking to each
1: other. Right? No, we wouldn't. <laughs> and, and importantly, your and my voice wouldn't have been heard in the
0: way that it is. Yeah, yeah. So they did us a favour. Yeah,
1: I do say that. Yeah, I do say yeah. That.
0: Yeah. Um, what else did you do in the cell to to pass the time? Um, so
1: there was letters that I could write, but they'd go through the red cross and you
0: write to your wife by now.
1: I could. And I did. Um,
0: that must have been amazing to get the first letter from
1: your wife. Yeah, but they were heavily redacted. Okay. So blacked out, you know, Mm. there were letters from my daughter, seven years old, that they had blacked out almost everything except I love you, dad, uh, you know, at at the end. Nonetheless, I did get them and they'd come at periods of, you know, they'd write them, I'd get them six months later, you know. Um, so there was that. I started to write poetry, a whole load of poetry, which I've only ever written in prison. Um, I, I wrote lists of things. I wrote words of things of different languages. I studied Latin, French, English, Arabic. We were very limited. The pen, I don't know how it is in, in main in prison America, but they were, they gave us like pens that were that,
0: that big. So we were allowed like a golf pencil, the pe- a pencil you see in your betting shop, yeah, yeah, and an anti shank toothbrush, which was about that yeah, big as yeah. well. So those toothbrushes, we
1: had two types of toothbrushes. The anti shank one was the, the there was the little one that is a thumb brush, right? Yeah, but there was also the finger brush. So the first one they gave us was the finger brush because you can't do anything with that. The pen they gave us was 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 kind of rubber, so it was um, it's not even a golf pencil. It's just it's it, it's it's malleable. It's it's so it's uh. You can't, you can't make a weapon out of it. They were very concerned about this. Yeah, thing is, the prisoners in Guantanamo—they had never, none of them were prisoners. No, none of them had been through a system of prison, so they don't even know the things that the American system had been trained to deal with in mainland America. Most of these guys didn't know they're from like deserts in Mauritania and and you know Afghan villages and stuff like that. They haven't got a clue what you guys are on about. Were you allowed visits?
0: No, no. No, no, not at all. Like even legal representation?
1: Eventually, yes, after two and a half years. After two Uh, and a half years? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No phone calls. No phone calls. No visits, no
1: newspapers, no TV. You said there
0: was originally, it was just you and another guy. Mm -hmm. Could you see him or communicate with him? No, no, no. No, no, through the no, through, like no. you see them in the prison movies through the vents and all that no. stuff, we're tapping on the pipes. No, no nothing. Good. <laughs> that, the pipes are not even connected to
1: one. <laughs> I tell you what did happen: though, dropping
0: it, a note at rack.
1: Well, well, yes. Every now and then I did drop them, but they, they, there's a, there's a you know a thorough thorough checking of everything. You know they think we're the most dangerous people on the planet. Yeah. You know, and it's really crazy. But the good thing that came out of this were the soldiers. Al, the guy you mentioned earlier at the beginning, right? That's where I met him. I met Al there. And he and many other of the soldiers in that environment, in that situation, see you at your worst and your best. And they come along and they want to know you. They want to talk talk to you, even though it's against the rules. It's, called, it's actually, there's a name for it. It's called fraternization with the enemy, right? So Al comes in and I start to get to know him little bit by bit, we start to talk. And then as we got closer, He sneaks in a DVD player. What? He sneaks in a DVD player. And now he's on the other side, so he can't come into the cell. And he brings in like one of my favorite films. And I had never seen this film before, but it's my favorite since. And you know it well. It's Snatch. (laughs) 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 I... I reveled every second of it because it brought back everything. All those accents that are connected to to Britain and and, uh, the acting and the storyline. And and he's sitting there watching. There's probably nuances in there that he doesn't get as an American, right? But I'm listening. I'm watching it. And and when he came over to my house, you know, several years later, he said, do you remember, Mozam? We watched
0: Snatch together. (laughs) Did he help you in any other ways?
1: Yeah, he used to talk all the time, um, and um, you know, I'd help them as well. a lot of the soldiers. I speak to them and, and give them advice about different things, you know. Uh, um, uh, so Al just wanted to say, look, I don't judge any of you guys on anything. My my job here is to to guard you, but I'm not going to do it Inhumanely to you. And that is something I saw more increasingly in, in Guantanamo, and him and several of the other prisoners, uh, soldiers rather. Are the reason why I don't hate America. Otherwise, I would have left that place detesting America. But that's the, they're the reason why not.
0: So, I was for the death penalty. You know, idealistic thinking, someone kills my family in cold blood, I don't want them to die. But once you get in the system and learn the reality, so my lawyer got Ray cronoff off death row, snaggletooth killer. State of Arizona paid expert witness 50,000 to say his teeth matched a mark on the victim, bite mark when they knew it didn't. And then I work with like one in ten out of London who've gone and interviewed death row exonerees. They estimate that one in ten are innocent on death row. Some lawyers have said up to a third of death row are innocent. You know, they just grab a black guy, fry him in the electric chair before the uh, governor's up for re-election to show how tough he is on crime, get Mm. more votes. So how many of the inmates were innocent? And when I say innocent, I mean... I had absolutely nothing to do with anything mm-hmm. versus people who could have been fighting back against the Americans and whether the definition of that person being a hero to the local people f- repelling the foreign invader versus a terrorist, according to the foreign invader, that's a whole, yeah. other, a whole other debate. Uh, that's a,
1: that's, you know, that's a really good question. And I'm, and I'm glad you asked because most people don't even look at that nuance. They think if you're fighting America, you're a terrorist. How does fighting America make you a terrorist? Because you didn't invade America. Uh, America invaded your land. If you're fighting back, you may not like the guy. You may not like what he stands for, but he's defending his homeland. Um, so it's hard to know because out of the 779 prisoners that were held in Guantanamo, there are only 40 left. That means 750-odd have been released. And that means they are not terrorists. They didn't do anything to America. They didn't do anything to anyone, but something was done to them. Um Including amongst those people who have been released are five senior Taliban members, including battlefield commanders, who've been released, and they are currently talking to American heads about American heads of state, including Mike Pompeo and others um, who recently, um, about US withdrawal. And, and so they're the, the party that America is talking peace with. So you've got to ask yourself, so what was the what was that war about again? And the other thing is, So there are a couple of guys that are accused of masterminding 9-11 in Guantanamo. They came several years after Guantanamo was set up. None of them have been convicted so far of any crime. Now, the law that exists in Guantanamo isn't the normal legal system you know in America, you know, even if that was normal. It's something called the military commissions where you can introduce hearsay evidence, where you don't have a jury, where there's no right to appeal and the death penalty is on the cards. So all of that, Despite all of that, and despite the fact that you can use torture evidence, evidence extracted by torture, they still haven't convicted anybody in 20 years. So that kind of tells you the justice system that exists in Guantanamo. Um, how do you know if, any, if anybody's innocent and guilty when you don't even state what the crime is?
0: Yeah, some researchers are saying, you know, these guys are mostly just farmers. That were in there. Yeah, so there are a mixture of different people. There's people who came to Afghanistan because they
1: wanted to uh, live in a, in, a, in a Muslim society. There are people who were working on aid projects. There were people who were farmers. There were people, some people who were f- soldiers for the Taliban, but they were fighting another Afghan group. They weren't there to fight America. You know. So all there's, there's different groups of people. And amongst those, the number of those who actually targeted America, there's probably you know, a handful if that, but even
0: that's not proven. But if the public finds out there is no enemy, then there is no justification for war. Exactly. And then there's no justification for making money off it. Exactly. So they've got to put out all these stories. We've got the blind chic and all this stuff. You hear mm-hmm. all this stuff getting hyped up. Mm-hmm. Um, this is essential, you know, torture, this debate over torture. They're killing us. We've got to torture them to save our own lives and all yeah. this stuff. Well, My question is, You said so many got released one way, so many got, you know, um, what about the ones that came out in body bags?
1: Yeah. So there are nine prisoners who've died in Guantanamo. Uh, Some of quote unquote, as they say, natural causes, though, my my belief is that there's no natural cause Guantanamo is what killed you, especially if you were held without a child or trial, it was unjust. There were several who've died of so-called suicide right now, just to tell you an idea of what happens. I once had a panic attack in my cell and they sent a psychiatrist, a military psychiatrist, so she's in full military gear. She sits down and she says, 558, that was my number. Have you ever thought about committing suicide? I said, no, nope, uh, I never. She said, didn't you ever think about getting your trousers off, threading your trousers with your sheet and tying a around, noose around your neck and tying it to the corner of your cell and just jumping off? Didn't you ever think about doing that? I said, not until you put the thought in my mind. <laughs> About six months later, I was released. Three prisoners turned up dead in their cell exactly with that technique. So the Americans have said that it was suicide. Others have said that this was uh, you know, something more nefarious.
0: Who knows? And do family members of these victims get compensation in any way no, or recognition?
1: I, I've met with one of the guys who was from Saudi Arabia. He's actually the chief of police of, of the city of Medina. And and I met with him and, uh, uh, you know, he said when they brought my son's body back to Saudi Arabia, he said he had no throat. They removed the throat. So um, there's no way of of us even, you know, doing a full proper post-mortem investigation. We just have to take their word for
0: it. What was your lowest moment in the, and did you think you were ever going to get out?
1: I think the lowest moment probably,
0: the lowest moments would
1: be when I receive a letter from home with pictures of my kids I had a child born that I didn't get to see until he was three years old. So they were low moments in the sense of the, I'm happy to see these images, but they throw me off. They throw me off in keeping my focus. My focus when I don't get these things is that, you know, I I read my Quran, I do my press ups, I do my workout, I do my reading. I know I I get through the day, as you know, as a prisoner, you you try to set yourself into some kind of mode and some kind of, when that comes up, I, I start telling myself, oh my God, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. I'm somebody that's outside of this and that, that just kills you.
0: So you mentioned the hope of seeing the uh, water when you jumped up in the wreck. Yeah, yeah. But there's also the struggle psychologically. Nietzsche said, thoughts of suicide got me through many a lonely night and contemplating suicide for me when I was facing life, I thought, right, my life right now is in the power of this few people that I have no power over. You know, it's 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 what's going to happen to me is all on them. But killing myself is giving me an option, like a sense of control, taking the power from those people. I could just kill myself, and they don't have that power over me anymore. They can't determine my fate anymore. Did you ever contemplate suicide? As well as escape? I contemplated escape
1: many times. Yeah. I had built up a plan and it was, you know, I would started that from, from Kandahar and Bagram. I'd actually said that this plan would require me to get some people on my side. It would mean taking some of the soldiers hostage. The good ones will be treated good. The bad ones will get a kicking. You know? And uh, uh, all of that was in my mind. I used to, I used to play it in my head every day how I'm going to sneak through the through the barbed wire and stuff, all of that stuff. Um, and I used to do it in Guantanamo too, that was much, much harder because you couldn't see anything. Everything was just an island and you just don't know where anything is. Um, but thoughts of suicide, really, I'll tell you straight, they never crossed my mind. Maybe it's to do with my faith and maybe it's to do with just who I am. But I didn't, I would have thought, my in my view, suicide would have been that they have won. That's how I would have seen it. And I had the point at which I felt comfortable was when I said, you know what, I'm going to resign myself to my fate. I haven't got a sentence. I'm not even b- being charged. Right. I don't know when it's going to end for me, but I will better myself here in this place. This place is going to make me stronger.
0: So you said that the photos came in at your lowest moment. Photos came in at mine because when I was facing 200 years, I did plan to do it to slash my wrists, but I was allowed seven photos and look at the pictures of my mum, dad, girlfriend, sister, Thinking, my mum's going to get a call saying your son just slashed his wrist in a foreign prison. He's dead. That's what stopped me from doing it. So those photos are what gave me hope. But when I asked you about hope and sadness, you said it was the photos that that pulled you down to the to, to this this sadness because yeah. you hadn't seen your son, et cetera. I mean, those two things they're so connected, they're interconnected, aren't they? Because it's yeah.
1: still, it, it, it you think to yourself, family is what that's what kind of makes us who we are and connects us to the people that we love. And if they are no longer in that story, um, for me, it was, for me, it was kind of a way to keep myself uh, disconnected and survive. But had I thought of suicide, that would have been one of the things that would, have you know, my children, I cannot, I cannot do that to them.
0: So how on earth do you get out of this bloody prison? <laughs> uh You know what? There's there's a several there's
1: several different things and again I, I, you know I've spoken about the, the decent guards and, and the, the decent people there were also a handful of interrogators who were also decent um, and they a started decent interrogators <laughs> yeah I mean you know eventually I think after 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 a while so these are these are not you, you know some are military and some are and, and they start to see and start to feel that they're part of something that is not right mm. they will be a part of history and they were on the wrong side of history. And I think the, the, there are plenty of those now who, who slowly but surely um, have started to speak out or at least p- recognize that this was wrong. Um, so one of the ways out for me was there was information coming to me from some of these decent guards. I just mm. got to tell you this little story about, <laughs> young a, a girl from, she's from the US Virgin Islands. Now, most Americans don't even know the Americans have Virgin Islands and they speak there with a Patois accent, You know, you know. So that's how they talk. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, most of them black, but this girl, she's mm. white. She's white and think she's, I think she's from Arizona originally, <laughs> right? And she's settled in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So she speaks with a t- Patwa accent, you know. She speaks like that. And it's so funny because she's blonde-haired, blue-eyed and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she comes along one day. And we've got to know one another and stuff. And she says, look what I got for you. Something about chocolate, man. So she brings this chocolate. She said, I got you a Cadbury's cream egg. <laughs> and Cadbury's, <laughs> Cadbury's are made in Birmingham, which is where I'm from.
0: Didn't have the same reaction as the Mars bar. No, because this was genuine. <laughs> this was genuine.
1: So she gives me this Cadbury's cream egg. Now, I don't told the girl. I don't, I still haven't told her. I can't stand them damn things either. I can't, what is a cream egg? the things don't. it doesn't work in my mind. But anyway, you know, to humour her, I ate the damn thing. <laughs> and she said, could you just give me back the wrapper because the rest is, is you know, it's contraband. So I gave it back to her and, you know, the rest is history. So I speak to her every now and then. I, I, I'm in communication with her and, and I still haven't had the guts to tell her that I couldn't stand that cream <laughs> egg. But it was people like that that bought me information about things are changing. There's a Supreme Court decision that's been passed in the favor of the prisoners that allows you to have a habeas corpus hearing, though that never happened. Um, but then eventually a lawyer came over. his name's Clive Stafford Smith. I was introduced to him by way of letter. It said that he worked on death row cases in New Orleans for the past 20 years and he's going to come and help you and my initial reaction to death row was I am screwed why would I have a, why would I have a death row lawyer coming to defend me in Guantanamo when I'm not even charged with a crime you know but that opened the door because he came to my cell one day he got a whole ream of documents listing what the torture that I told him about stuff like they threw it on the on the desk and said you know this crap's not going to work we have to embarrass these people it's the only way you're going to get out
0: and he is an absolute godsend, isn't he? Yeah. Did you watch his documentary? Louis Thoreau said it was one of his favorites. So many days on death row in yeah, America. Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah, it,
1: it is. Um, um, Fifteen days in May, or fourteen days in May. I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. About his, his yeah, yeah. So Clive was just something else. He, he was something else, really, and and especially because he's British. He was, he was, he. he they only allow Americans to, on on Guantanamo to to represent prisoners, but he had joint British. And dual uh, American nationality.
0: Yeah, I've had some communication with Clive in the past. Would love to get him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So the legal process then sets you free? No. No. There was, there was no
1: legal process. That's it's important that we inside People don't get released from Guantanamo because of any legal process, right. it's just a deal with governments. Ah. You get embarrassed. The British government got embarrassed. My dad was doing a campaign over here. He was oh. saying, my son's been held in this, holding this place. He's been tortured. He's not had any rights. America and Britain are the best friends. How can you do this to your best friends, you know, citizens? So eventually that's what turned it. Amnesty uh. International, um, parliamentarians and stuff like that. So it was that. And that is what gets everybody released I see. from everywhere, whether it's from, whether the guys from Sudan or from Mauritania or from elsewhere, they come to an agreement. Uh, nobody gets convicted and and charged and convicted of any
0: meaningful crimes. So it doesn't end with a plea bargain.
1: (laughs) There's nothing to bargain.
0: (laughs) So if they let you go then, are they acknowledging that they made a mistake in any way? No. No compensation, no apology. No. No. Take us through the days of your release, what that
1: was like. I mean, the day of the release was amazing because uh, a US military uh, female officer comes along, she says, 558, we have decided to release you uh, to the Brits. And there's, you know, there's there's nothing f- further that's for, going for, to gonna happen with you, essentially to paraphrase. I said, I don't really believe you, but, you know, um, I'd spoken to Clive and he said, you know, you will be released. So this, the day of the release is just fascinating. It's, they take me onto this coach where there's three other British prisoners. There was 15 British prisoners altogether, but they were sent back in different different batches. I was with a batch of three other guys and all these other guys are all black. Britons, um, and we're all sitting on together onto this coach and they've got 10 soldiers for each prisoner. So like, and we're all in the so-called three piece suit. And I start laughing because the first time I speak to any prisoners now, I've I've been in solitary confinement. I see these guys and I start laughing and and talking to them. I said, I said, these idiots think we're going to escape on the way to freedom. (laughs) (laughs) The Soldiers didn't like what we were saying. There were a couple of soldiers, of course, who'd come along and shook my hand yeah. before they left. And you know, I, I, you know, I can't tell you the, the the effect of those soldiers on me to this day. But these ones were from a new batch; I didn't know who they were. Get the get to the other side of the island because you've got to catch a ferry uh, to get to the other side of the island where the airport is. In their haste to take us over, they'd forgotten the keys for the padlocks mm-hmm. and for the for the uh, shackles. No. So this was beautiful. It was so poetic. Somebody had to bring in a pair of huge wire cutters. <laughs> and I'm kid you not, they snapped off our shackles. Wow. That's how I walked from US military custody to uh, British custody. Now, here, the police officers, right? And it was really strange because, you know, these are bobbies. And one of them's a scouser. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't tell you what it sounds <laughs> like listening to a scouser accent. After years of being held by the Americans, I guess I'm sure you know what that's
0: like. When I was, um, they took me to LA yeah. and they were like, we're going to put you on a plane first so you don't scare the passengers. And it was a Cockney <laughs> flight um, cabin crew pilot. Yeah. And I just to hear the Cockney accent and for them to talk to me like I wasn't an animal. My heart, I was like, oh. Uh, <sighs> yeah. It was a
1: relief. I mean, it yeah. was strangely enough. these these, these a police officers, and they're probably going to take me to the police station, but they were intrigued. I mean, even for them, this is like, "Wow, we're we going to Guantanamo to pick up some guys." It's so he started talking to me like a human being, and there were no shackles, there was no, there, there was nothing. There was none of that stuff that the Americans do, and uh, they bought newspapers. I was on the front page of the Sun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, they bought chocolate. Was, was the media all sympathetic? It didn't seem like it, but you know, you know, just pictures of all four of us there. You know, dark skinned guys. Uh, accused of terrorism coming back from Guantanamo. It didn't look, look, but I, I wasn't bothered. The coppers seemed nice. Um, and, you know, they bought chocolates and crisps and drinks and stuff like that. Oh, wow, first time having chocolate in God knows other than the one that had the cream egg. <laughs> 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 and then, uh, um, you know, we arrived back in RAF Northolt and as soon as we arrived, two women walk on, on, on board, sit down next to me and say, Mr. Begg, you are under arrest under the prevention of terrorism. I thought, not again? Like, are you serious? So they, they bring in the meat wagon what? onto the plane, because it's, it's a transport plane. They put me into the meat wagon in the on the plane, and then they drive me off to, all the way to Paddington Green Police Station.
0: Oh, I cannot believe what I'm hearing. Gate arrest, that's the, like your biggest fear? Yeah, yeah. Well, But this is like a multi- uh, multiplied?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was standard procedure. I was told it was going to happen, but it was Oh, was pressure. it? Okay. Yeah. So they take me to Paddington Green Police Station. As I go in the police station, I hear shouting people demonstrating at this outside the police really? station. Free him. Let him go. Let him go. Yes. The, 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 the desk sergeant, the duty sergeant, asks me, right, um, before you, they're going to take me into the cell, but uh, uh, do you want to make any phone calls? I was oh, my God. After three years, I'm going to get to make a phone call. too. I said, no, you know what? I'm not going to speak to anybody as a prisoner. I will. No, I said, no, I'm not. I'm not. And I don't even know any numbers anyway. I've forgotten them all. So I spent the cell, uh, you know, a night in the cell. The next day, I, I I was taken to my lawyer's house, where my father, my wife, my kids, including the new one I'd never
0: seen. That's oh, I how did that feel to see a kid and your wife? Uh, you
1: know, I saw my father, my father father was a big campaigner yeah. he had two phones going and stuff like that and yeah. you know fobbing off the times and the telegraph he said no i can't give you interviews right now and
0: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> call back later <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, uh, um, my, my brother he, he went to the takeaway and bought all this junk food pizzas and doner kebabs and god knows what and I couldn't eat that stuff. I've been yeah.
0: eating. You know what? Your the stomach strings? I've not, never <laughs> gone back to <seen> eating as much <laughs> yeah. as I used to eat. Yeah, free. you can't, you can't, not eat that stuff, right? Yeah. So
1: I'm looking at that stuff. I, I can't eat it. And then, uh, then, then I, I see my kids and that was probably the hardest because my kids didn't know me. <gasps> uh, my eldest daughter sort of remembered me. She was about seven when I was taken, but the others, they, they, barely, barely, and my no, newborn who is now three years old
0: didn't know me at all. Wow. So. And how did that feel when you looked at your newborn?
1: As I said he was three years old now, right? So, you know, when we eventually went back home, because c- he'd, he'd sleep in the bed with my wife, my my job was now to kick him out. <laughs> 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 so, so he didn't like me very the much. usurper. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like me very much. But, you know, it was, a, it was emotional for them. It, it wasn't so much for me because I had, steeled myself you know and and i saw tears in all their eyes but i i had I, i'd done my crying in the first year
0: what about flashbacks nightmares waking up the next day thinking yeah. where am i am A i lot, am I, often, I really free
1: yeah and back in those days i used to see this dream all the time that i'm walking normally free and i've got look down i've got shackles on my legs and <laughs> wearing orange orange trousers but yeah that that kind of happened you know Far less now, but back in those days it happened. were you offered professional psychological help? nothing nothing no 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 nothing. There were organizations that were campaigning uh, with families and stuff like that um, that helped, but nothing you know nothing from the states at all. in fact, the state still the state took my passport away from me immediately the moment I came back, like the you are still deemed a threat and whatever it is. but one thing I did do is I, I the organization that I work for now, I'm the outreach director Cage, I went onto its website and I found. Like, these are the prisoners that were held in Guantanamo. And this is who they are. This is where they're from. And I started to research. Because I I'd, I'd came across different prisons at different times. And, and I never knew much about them. So I started to campaign. And there, there, there were relatives of people coming to see me. What about my dad? What about my son? What about my husband? And so it, like, it was this kind of sense of, you know, obligation. I've got to help these people, whichever way I can. So that's how I started the, the, the whole campaign. Against Guantanamo.
0: Did MI5 want a word with you?
1: Oh, no. They were running a mile. Because one of the things I did straight away um, is I I took them to court. A huge case, a massive case. I think they spent six, I was told they spent 60 million in defending themselves with God knows how many barristers, like a whole army of barristers. And in the end, we came to a settlement, but it was... Evidence showed that the government, Andrew, and many other people like him had been involved in the cases of many, and they were complicit in the torture of their own citizens. They knew their own citizens were being tortured and they and they were fighting the state, so it's impossible. You know, I told you that much amount of money they put in. So we eventually got settlements, but they didn't accept responsibility. What they did say is that David Cameron said at the time, we're going to order a judge-led independent inquiry into the, uh, torture. At the same time, I sat with the Met Police, heads of the Met Police, and I gave them evidence and details of Andrew and other people who were complicit in torture. These British agents that took part in the torture of their own citizens. They began an investigation and after a few years they said, you know what, you can't do anything. I said, I never expected you to, this is too. they said, uh, well, you know, the government's refusing to cooperate.
0: It's like the CIA investigating itself for drug trafficking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But when I spoke to these
1: officers, they said to me, "We will go right to the top if it means Jack Straw, Tony Blair, so be it." And they were adamant. But I think
0: they, you know,
1: they they, they probably were a bit naive about who they were up against. Mm.
0: So that set you off on this mission, then. Yeah, um, you're with your family. Things are going good. You're an advocate for torture. You've got Cage. Against torture. An advocate of the
1: Although, let me tell you this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once in Guantanamo, MI5 turn up to an interrogation, right? And they bring me a book. And the book is called The English, A Portrait of a People. And it's by Jeremy Paxman. Right? So the book, I've still got it to this day, it's stamped, approved by US forces. Many years later, I go... To new, on Newsnight, and I meet Jeremy Paxman. I say, Mr. Paxman, the Americans gave, the, the MI5 gave me a copy of your book. Why do you think they gave me a copy of your book of all people? He looks at it, flicks at the pages, and he says, I don't know, Mozambique, but that's evidence of torture right there.
0: You know? <laughs> 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 so you met world leaders. I did, yeah who were the the world leaders at that time
1: so i've given evidence at a war crimes tribunal in malaysia and i met with at the time the pri- he, he's he later became the prime minister was prime minister before mahathir mohammed uh i've met with imran khan uh i've met with um the deputy prime minister of uh luxembourg who so so what i was trying to do meeting some of these people is to ask them to take quant form Guantanamo prisoners uh, into their country because some of these guys, if they return home, they're going to get tortured, like the Chinese Uyghurs, like uh, some of the Libyans and the Egyptians and stuff like that. So, because you've got this stamp of Guantanamo on your head, you go to some of those countries, they say, Well, hold on. if America holds you, you must be bad. So, back you come into prison and we're going to torture you. So, some of these countries, some of these nations, uh, uh, you know, I met with some of the leaders and other people uh, um, from the foreign ministries, and, uh, you know, some of them did take people and some of them didn't. And then you visited prisoners during the Arab Spring. Yeah. So during the Arab Spring, I went to to Egypt, I went to Tunisia, I went to um, Libya, and to Syria. Um, all of those places were, you know, I ca- came across prisoners that some had been held for twenty years, twenty one years by Gaddafi, by Mubarak, by Ben Ali, and you know, it was it was the kind of the Arab Spring and things were changing. When I went to Syria, it was a bit different because. Uh, it, it it didn't have that kind of support from the world at that point, uh, at which later, of course, many people got involved afterwards. Um, and I got to know people there, and I was I was investigating people who'd been renditioned to Syria, because remember I told you that the Americans had threatened to rendition me to Syria. Um, so that was part of my investigation. During the period of time, I got to m- meet some of the rebels and stuff like that. And, uh, y- you know, when I went back, I, I sent one of them a-, a generator, and then lo and behold, in... February 2014, a raid takes place at my house and 150 officers are involved. This is now Britain on counter-terrorism on speed. And they searched every single room of my house over the period of five days. My my kids were were taken to different houses and I was taken uh, to a police station and interrogated for three or four days and then taken to a high-security prison, Belmarsh, after going to Westminster Magistrates. I and, I rem- yeah, and I remained there in, Westman- in, in, in Belmarsh as a Category A prisoner for seven months.
0: Holy shit.
1: In solitary confinement again. Sorry, in, in an isolated cell. Sorry, not in solitary confinement, as I would call it, but so in an isolated cell.
0: On the day of the SWAT team raid, were you like, here we go again? Yeah, this, this time around, this, going to repeat itself. this
1: time around, I went to my, you know, th- they, were, they were, they were, they didn't bash down the door. They were a little, they were, they were civil. They knew I had, had, had a big profile already by this time. So they knew that. this it had
0: is, to be a bit. Yeah. Careful, they were a is. little
1: bit. And so they knocked on the door and they said, got, you've got a warrant for your arrest and whatever. So I, I, I said, can you let me speak to my family and please don't cuff me in front of them? They said, yeah. I said, let me. So I went to them. They were all sitting in a room together and I hugged them. I said, don't worry, I'll be back soon.
0: First day in Belmarsh.
1: <laughs> totally. The coppers were trying to frighten me. They said, you know, this is the most difficult prison in, in the whole of Britain. It's, the, it's high security and stuff like that. And I thought, okay. So I thought it was going to be like pretty rough. And, but, um, you know, I was, I was waiting for all those things to happen that I'd experienced in Guantanamo. None of them did. I was waiting for the full strip search. I was waiting for the, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, all of those nasty things that they do, as you know, never happened. I was waiting to be shackled. Didn't happen. I was waiting for people to scream at me and to. Well, didn't happen. So I was waiting for dogs that never came. So I'm walking along with the prison guard. <laughs> Two guys are walking towards me uh, and, and they say, Hey, brother Mozam, salamu alaikum. I said, alaikum salam. He said, Where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm a prisoner here. He said, Yeah, we heard about what happened to you. I said, Where are you guys going? So we're going to the gym. I said, You have a gym here? So yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just, we're just, uh, we're just coming back from visits. I said, you get visits? He <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do, we do. But, but um, my mate's just going to make a phone call. I said, going to make? You get phone calls? <laughs> <laughs> so then, I then I said to these guys, I said, I, I thought, what? Like, do you guys work in the prison? He said, no, we're prisoners. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: I said, okay. And then they took me back, took to this to this cell, and then um, they they hand me this sheet. This is your sheet for. Your, your food menu that comes. This is your sheet for your canteen. There's like 500 items on there. Wow, you know, I could get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> you get phone calls. So, you know, it, it was, I was next to on either side of my cell where I was. I was in a single cell and I was in single cell because I'm Cat A and I'm a Cat A because I'm a terrorism prisoner and I'm a terrorism prisoner because I sent a generator to Syria. Um, and either side of me, are two guys who were serving life, 38 year sentences For gangland killings And the irony was Is that they thought I was the bad guy <laughs> Not as in, I don't make him bad As in bad I mean Yes he's a bad boy <laughs> <laughs> This guy shouts On the landing one day He said You know what guys You guys are all You know Fighting in the streets Of Britain But, but this Mazenberg man Him been in the Battlefield man <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay.
0: So that earned you some kudos, a little didn't bit, it? a little bit. yeah. Got well, away with a few things, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Did anyone target you? No, 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 never, never. Um,
1: as we were talking earlier on, the, the Muslim kind of prison population is, is strong; it's kind of powerful. Um, I got along with everybody, to be honest with you, my my, my uh, everybody from every background and and so forth. I felt uh, my first experience of, of prison in the UK and to see people, I was on a, on a wing that's known as house block four where there's mostly drug, drug people, drug people on drugs. And I saw a side of, of Britain that I don't even know about. And, and you know, this probably better that, that people's broken lives institutionalized. Um, a, and you you're just thankful that you're not them.
0: Most prisoners that I met had suffered some form of child abuse, sexual abuse or parents, Thrown them away as kids, raised on the streets, didn't stand a chance. And I learned the media is like, prisoners are serial killers, rapists, murderers, pedophiles on one side. And on the other side, the media is like, they've got all these luxuries, blah, blah, blah. So the public hates the prison population. But you get in and you see that, yeah, those serious offenders are, are a minority. But the vast majority of prisoners are society's most vulnerable people. What I learned...
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, it's easy to hate people from a distance, right? So you, you come in their proximity, you, you sit with them, you're next to them. How are you going to hate somebody that you, you're in their proximity, you see, you live with them, you see the upside and the bad side and the downside? So it's much harder to do that. And, and um, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that the system, that the prison system, it isn't designed to rehabilitate it's designed in some quirky way to get some kind of retribution, but even that isn't working because,
0: you know, people reoffend. It seems to me it's designed so politicians can posture being tough on crime, while handing all these contracts out to their cronies. Uh, the tax, <laughs> the taxpayers—it's like a feeding trough, isn't it? Taxpayers' money, and they all want to get in there with the political you contributions. No, I'm thinking to myself,
1: you know, I, I learned that my- that my case and the raid and everything cost over a million pounds. How? And in the end, uh, so I was in there for seven months. The day I was supposed to go to trial, uh, they announced suddenly that uh, we're dropping the case. So I thought, hold on, why? because the definition of terrorism doesn't really fit sending a generator or, or is there something else? And uh, uh, then the chief of Westminster police actually said, and I quote, Mazam Beg is an innocent man. He didn't just say he was found not guilty because we would dropped the charges, but um, he's innocent. And I thought, what was the point of this? But what they did, and again, going back to the story of Prophet Joseph, right, is that you just raised my profile again in my community and amongst other people. Now people see me as somebody as targeted by the state and the state has exonerated me because it's been forced to. So that's what it did. Um, And so like, even for my organization as well, in the beginning, you know, people thought, oh, you know what, he's been, they're charging him with terrorism. If that's the case, the organization's going to get hammered and stuff like that. Uh, and the relief on the, from my, my colleagues <laughs> when I was exonerated was, you know, Cage has been vindicated and so forth. But again, it, it you just don't know as a kind of philosophical thing, you don't know. We as Muslims believe that you don't know necessarily what's good for you and your Lord, your creator knows what's good for you. And, that sometimes is part of the test that you're put through so that you can come out the other side in, in, in a more powerful way.
0: I do feel like an invisible hand picked me up from a dangerous lifestyle and put me in somewhere which was helter skelter, but it forced me to grow up as a person and re- reevaluate my life and set my life path in a whole new direction. I never would have gone on. Had that prison experience not happened you wouldn't be here today, right? Doing yeah, this stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and being involved in educating people and teaching and, and helping to guide the next generation. right? Yeah. yeah.
0: How much time went from the day you were released from the first incarceration to the arrest of the, on the second incarceration? Uh, nine years, nine years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I got released December 2007. So I'm at about 13 years. So, you smile a lot, and as men, you know, we want to not show sometimes vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And to go through such an intense experience, even though you said you didn't, f- you know, feel suicidal or anything like that, and you went through it with a warrior spirit, you must have internalized your trauma. And then nine years later does a repeat to an extent. Did that reopen that wound?
1: It did, a, it did in the beginning. So, you know, obviously you know, I'm, I'm saying this is about, all oh, this happened, and, you know, I was, but yeah, in the beginning, the first days, and, and the worst days of course are in the police station. I didn't really talk much about that, but in the first few days in the police station, when you think, what have they got on me? What are they going to do? Uh, and so I've always felt the police station was worse than a prison, you know, even though, and, and here in this case, because all of this effort is being expended on you. Like, what the hell have I done to you? Like, can you tell me one person that is a threat from anything that I have done, past or present? Like, nothing. Um, and I was asking the police officer, I said, is this what you joined the police force for? Do you think you're keeping the streets safe by this? The people I sent a generator to are fighting for their lives. You know, that that's all it is They need electricity so they can eat food And see um, So anyway, after all of that I I, uh, I thought to myself That uh, I, I, I'm going to get out of this eventually I, I will walk out of this That anxiety In the beginning, it was, you know, it, it's it's destructive it, it has physical effects on you It has effects on your stomach, on your skin On your brain And you've got to find your way Out of it And I've got to say, you know, some lawyers are hilarious. I mean, we're sitting and talking, and uh, one of the lawyers, she, she, I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but because I just don't want to out him, but she, she mentions his name, but instead of saying his name with the word heart, which his name begins with, she says fart. <laughs> so, Sergeant Fart, so and so, right? And I'm thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for my life and this is making me laugh but it's just those little things sometimes yeah. that people say that just take you out of it the gallows humor yeah. especially exactly there you go
0: were there any moments during both incarcerations where you just broke down and cried yes and what um, triggered that Um,
1: a sense uh, perhaps not momentary but a sense of hopelessness
0: thinking it's never going to end
1: I'm. I mean, generally think. If I've done something wrong, I'm trying to think. Okay, I have to pay. I got to pay. I got to pay. You know, in life, you don't. If you've done something wrong, you're gonna to have to pay. You're just gonna. You're not gonna be able to get away with it. As Muslims, we believe if, even if you get away in in this world, you won't in the next. So it's better you pay now than you pay later. So I, I, I'm happy with that. But I, my sense is, this targeting of the state targeting you, states, powerful states that are you know they're the bastions of freedom of democracy of human rights and they tell the rest of the world that you are backwards because you don't do these things and yet you guys do that and get away with it so you know when you think about all of this you think um um you know when is it going to be over when are they going to stop when are they going to realize when is your humanity going to come through
0: yeah, see, I did my ecstasy smuggling. So I had to man up and accept responsibility. But I can't imagine the frustration of being an innocent person and just being in there and the system. It's Kafkaesque, isn't it? Trying yeah. to navigate. It is, yeah.
1: And, and, and I'll tell you this. What makes it kind of easier for me, as I said, I've always, I was only there for three years. And it is, it's relative. I mean, you were in prison for six years. And the length of time, you'll never get it back. The people that I know, uh, in fact, one of my closest friends, we live together in the same house in Afghanistan where we were working on the aid projects. He, Shakur, he went into prison for 14 years. He's from London without charge or trial. And he came home to see kids that are adults. Wow. And you know, when I said, like, uh, uh, my kids didn't know me, they, they still had some idea, but these his kids they don't know him at all. Like, wow. he's a stranger in their lives. And this isn't a story that's from, uh, you know, deepest, darkest Africa or Asia. This is from London, Battersea. He's from Battersea. And he was never charged, never convicted, n- nothing. And when I look at him, and if you think I laugh a lot, the guy will make you laugh like nonstop. <laughs> I, mean, he, I mean, he's full of life. And then I, I campaign for other prisons and I talk to them regularly from different parts of the world, Mauritania and Kuwait and Sudan and elsewhere. It's kind of a recurrent theme, no bitterness, no seeking vengeance, yet yeah, they're passionate about justice, they want to speak out against it, what happened, but all of them have made friends with their gods wow. in one way or the other. Wow. I've got to tell you about one guy, right? It's a film called The Mauritanian. It's just come out recently. It's been nominated for five BAFTAs. Uh, the lawyer is played by Jodie Foster, Wow. the prosecutor, as it were, who changes his mind because he's a, he turns against Guantanamo, um, is played by Benedict Cumberpatch, And uh, the, the, the lead character is played by Tahir Rahim, who, who's in a recent BBC publication called The Serpent and uh, The Looming Tower and stuff. So this is about a Mauritanian guy who's in Guantanamo for 14 years without charge or trial. He's tortured, my torture compared with his, like his torture compared with mine is, is 10 times worse. He's waterboarded, he's beaten, his ribs are broken and stuff like that. He comes back home, right? And his one of his f- close friends now is a guy called Steve who became his friend in Guantanamo and he's come to the Mauritanian desert where this guy lives to visit him. Holy shit. And he's not full of vengeance and anger. He said, listen, I forgive for anybody who abused me. I forgive them. I've got to move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Harboring that negative energy just wears you down, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it breaks you. It's pointless. Yeah. But it's hard to have that mindset for some people. Um, So going into the UK system then, did you draw on the skill set of your first incarceration did yeah. you, like, go back to doing your exercises and your reading or whatever? It, it was-
1: yeah, it, yeah, I did. But there was so much more available. I mean, I had a TV in myself, for goodness <laughs> sake. You know I mean? like, and you, you, I had a TV, but you couldn't have a, 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 um, a remote control. So I had to get up to change every time, which is like, you know, it takes you back to the 80s. But... You know I managed to negotiate with one of the guys on the server I said, "Can you get me can you sneak me in a you know, a control? <laughs> He said, yeah, if you give me some if you give me some some um, incense sticks so yeah, I can trade you that for this So just make sure nobody because my cell used to get as a category prisoner, my cell gets searched regularly, so that's different between me and the other prisoners um, but I managed to hide it in a place where you know I had a
0: good few months of <laughs> UK yeah. uh, cat A prison food versus Gitmo prison food. Gosh, n- there's not much in
1: it. There's <laughs> it <is> not <laughs> much. I, I mean, Gitmo prison food was pretty pretty horrible.
0: Um, prison food here was
1: may- maybe a, a grade higher. I'd say a grade higher, probably.
0: Was there a lot more noise then in the UK prison system? Did that disturb you? Like, were you trying to sleep? for People a thing?
1: hitting the cell doors and smacking them all the time. Guantanamo wasn't really not like that for me because I was in solitary most of the time anyway. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of noise, a lot of noise.
0: Did you witness any violence or guard brutality in the UK? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. I saw people fight. I saw fights. Um, I, I saw, I, I, I saw somebody ha- try to hang himself in the cell next to me. Um, and I alerted the guards to open, open the door to get him out. And so he tied a noose around his neck he'd he'd, uh, tried to kill himself um so yeah i I think i found it sadder i I found this we were political prisoners guantanamo was political prisoners even if we weren't political activists necessarily we were held for political reasons this was just broken lives man it was just horrible um
0: could you have visits in kate
1: yeah i did get some visits i did get visits yeah Um, we're different. Those are the Cate prisoners. They they wear an orange bib when they go out uh, as opposed to the the yellow ones. But, you know, it's, it's, we did get them. there would be more searches for us. We'd be, there'd be a bit more security, but the one good thing is that you'd have your own cell.
0: Yeah. There's nothing like your own cell is there. I played the system to the end of it when I was in minimum security where I got my own cell for quite a period of months. And that was just,
1: (laughs) I would actually say you know, I'd trade any day. I would trade, um, you know whether it being cat a or cat b for having my my you know not not give up i would not give up my um my uh, s- single cell
0: And to put this in a context for the public to understand think about your house think about the toilet the room with the toilet in imagine living in that room the toilet room with two or three other people and having to go on the toilet in front of them and I have to sleep around them. and oh. I
1: can't tell you this, you know, Sean, that, what you've just said right now, nobody will know that unless they've experienced it, right? Yeah. Nobody will. You can't know what that means, that, yeah. that degradation, and that how do you live in that? And, you know, I thank God that I never lived in that, even though I was in Belmarsh. Though yeah. people in cells opposite me were in that situation, I think, how do you guys do that?
0: So you're in Cate the whole time? Yeah, all the time. All the time. Yeah. And then what was your release day like coming out? Uh,
1: <laughs> there was a video link In which they announced I've been preparing for my trials Ready to go to battle for this You know I'm, I'm going to show This is not terrorism I'm going to show how The British government Has sent over a thousand generators To the same Free Syrian army I'm, I'm, I'm politically charged on this um, And then they just Pulled the plug They threw in the towel Before the fight So I was really upset in a way
0: <laughs> You want to, really to go to war? <laughs> I said you know
1: what You guys have put me in prison So many times Bagram, Kandahar Guantanamo, Belmarsh let's go there, come on, let's go to battle. And uh, they gave up, they threw in the towel. So I was a bit upset, but of course happy. I walked out and there's a whole bunch of media people out there. Mr. Begg, what do you think this is all about? And is this, uh, you know, what do you think about the government, etc., and all that stuff. And I just smiled and got into the car with my lawyer. And uh, this time we went, I can't remember, I can't remember where we went off that
0: from here. Went somewhere. Not piles of junk food. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I can't, I can't actually remember where we went straight away, but I think somebody picked me up and my, my brother or somebody and drove me back home. Um, and there were massive protests taking place for me, like thousands of people turned up protests outside the home office and, the, um, met um, police office and stuff. So there was a movement going on. People felt that I was being targeted. Um, but, but it was, again, as I said, sometimes your enemies can do for you what you couldn't do
0: yourself. Was your decompression from that incarceration much less intense than the first time around?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I'd come home, of course. A lot of my stuff had been seized from my house. Mm. So there were computers and stuff that I'd collected and whatever. That came back eventually. They did bring it back in strange. The police had boxed it up all nicely and thought, wow, that's be- better condition than when I sent. Um, there were restrictions on me. For a period of time, if somebody bought me a coffee, they could be guilty of a terrorist offence. <sighs> so there, those restrictions lasted. My passport had been confiscated. Um, uh, my bank accounts kept, kept getting, getting closed. One after the other, one account I had had for 25 years. And so there, there were residual effects of all of this. And they res- remain with me to this day. There are still those effects. Even though, as I said, the police had declared me innocent, being in- declared innocent by the police doesn't mean you're going to get treated like an innocent guy. Um, and that's, you know, getting back to this thing of the Islamophobia, the racism, that, Forget the neo-Nazi on the street, which I used to fight on, you know, when I was a kid. This is at state level. This is Boris Johnson saying Muslim women who wear the niqab look like bank robbers. This is like, um, you know, Baroness Warsi saying that Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test. This is, you know, Schedule 7 laws where you stopped at an airport um, and are 42 times more likely to be stopped if you're a Muslim. This is the passing of a new anti-terror law every year. That targets people, whether they've written poetry or whether the kid goes to school and mispronounces a word uh, that sounds like "cooker bomb," but actually is "cucumber," and he ends up referred to terrorism officers. Um, and this is happening to the Muslim community.
0: We'll get some more of the politics in a second. Did the second incarceration then have less take less of a toll on your wife and kids? Or were they like just fuck? This is happening all over again. It made my, my, it even worse.
1: My kids were kind of mostly, uh, you know, there's there's four of them, and and there was there were two years between all of them. Yeah. So they were all kind of mid to late teenagers, and they were getting that age when they're getting active and aware of the world and stuff. So it politicized them. They, they started to see things that they probably you know before when, I, when you know when I used to go to do talks and lectures and stuff like that. they were just doing that doing a boring old talk. This time around, they were, they were, they were interested this time around. They were, they, they felt it themselves. They, they, they were old enough to remember the raid and they didn't like it. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, it did have consequences. Of course it, it had consequences on my family.
0: um, And what year was it you got out of Belmarsh? 2014. 2014. Mm -hmm. So was Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy at that point.
1: Yeah. So I had met Julian 2011. He did an interview with me on his uh, Russia Today programme um, where we spoke about you know, different aspects, different things. Uh, and I'd met him, Julian, a couple of times as well because we have the same lawyer. Um, and I'd met Julian uh, and spoken to him about, you know, various aspects of, of what his own thing was. He At the time himself, he was wearing a tag. So when he, when he did an interview with me, he was wearing a tag um, and was concerned that the Americans were going to try to take him over. Uh, and the Americans, of course, they they regarded him as an enemy of the state. And they regarded him as an enemy of the state because he was, you know, leaking things that they should have investigated themselves. You know, the the massacres that took place in in Iraq, uh, the Guantanamo files, the, the fact that, that Torture was taking place in the America. So much of this hidden stuff that he leaked, um, which in any society that says everybody's equal under the law, should have already looked into. But they were covering it up and hiding under the carpet. And he uncovered it and has been targeted for it.
0: And his journalism has been 100% accurate. Yeah. And to people who watch this channel then, so I communicated, I sent Julian a, a copy of Hard Time actually when he was in, the embassy and had a brief communication with him, tried to rally some support. They put that sex offender jacket on him, which is absurd. And now he's where you were.
1: You know, so, what's really weird is that some of the people from, from Julian's team came over to ask me about some practical steps of how do you survive in Belmarsh? Right. So I gave, gave him some points and stuff like that. But to say that, I, you know, Julian is in a worse place in Belmarsh than I was in, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, he's isolated, he's he's kept away from people and, and uh, you know, the prospect looming over your head of being sent to America and then being treated, you would be treated like a political prisoner in the way that America treats its political prisoners, which cannot bode well for him. It will mean solitary confinement, it will mean being in places where you'll get tortured and abused and probably targeted by other prisoners. Um, which I'm sure you can speak to, you know, better than I can.
0: Yeah, the viewers are constantly reaching out. Anytime I post something about Assange, asking what can they do? What can people do to help and support him?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's important that people, you know, the concept of, you know, we are as as a country and, and a world where we are because of, you know, much to do with the Iraq war. There's still been no accountability for that. Millions of people have died as a result, ISIS has come about as a result of that. As a result of ISIS, we've got laws in this country, the likes of which we never even had at the height of the IRA campaign, right? It's crazy. So when will there be any accountability? And if there's anything Julian Assange has done, is being targeted for, it's to ask those questions. Put that information out and say, listen, this is what was done. This is what's been covered up. Why does it take somebody like that to show us what we should be doing in the first place? You know, so ask your MPs go to your, your politicians and say, what are you doing about Assange's case? That it it is, you know, write to him and, and you can get his details, I think, on um If you just do, do a search on Assange and try and think
0: where you can find that. Um, yeah, because mail is like gold in prison. Yeah,
1: you can email. You could actually go to com, and you can search a person's uh, prison number and you should be able to email them as well. So I remember I used to get emails from from people. Um you don't actually get the email itself it's just printed out as a sheet yeah. so
0: is there an organization at the spearhead of helping him we could put a link in this uh, below the video yeah I think there is I think it's
1: the hashtag is free Assange
0: free Assange yeah.
1: um, and I'm trying to remember what the what the website's for I, I forget now but if you do a search you will find
0: it what's the status of his mental and physical health these days it's not been
1: good it's not been good at all from my knowledge um, it, he has you know bouts of depression. Uh, and rightly so, as I said, from my knowledge, he is isolated from other prisoners. Um, not because he poses a threat or they pose a threat to him. I think they're probably worried about the influence he may have on anybody else. Um, and when you do that to somebody for no fault of his own, uh, then that's going to have a debilitating effect. It's going to destroy your mind.
0: Yeah, so let's support Julian. This is a guy who has sacrificed his life for the truth. And we've seen in the pictures and videos of his you know, physical Um, deterioration and the Americans you know I'm not saying the American people I'm saying forces in the American government absolute cowards have utilised him in certain ways but now you know I've never said okay we're gonna exonerate you or you know give you a pass somehow we're gonna let you off the hook they're still pushing for him to go over there aren't they
1: it's shocking. After everything that's happened, you know, Julian Assange in, in, in a normal world would have been somebody that's prized, that's given awards, that's recognized for his contribution and sacrifice. But in the world that we live in today, he's somebody that's targeted and uh, by the very state that's supposed to be, uh, you know, honoring him. It's, 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 uh, it's
0: really, really unfortunate. So this war on terror stuff then, is it just endless Government spending at our expense, is that—is that what it's all about? Just let's keep it going, like all well predicted. Listen, you know, war on
1: terrorism, anti-extremism, or whatever you want to call that, is an industry. They are think tanks that receive millions of pounds um, and push the various agendas all around the world and say we are the experts in this. And they, they go to other lesser advanced countries and say, look, this is the program that we've built, we can sell it to you. And, and so it's a business. And it's a business here, it's a business abroad, it's a business in America, it's a business in Saudi Arabia, it's a business everywhere. Um, The more you can send this message off, um, that we have a massive threat of terrorism and extreme... Okay, there is a threat of terrorism, but there's also a threat of being hit by cars. Um, Get it into context, get it relative. Uh, And so, there's as we pointed out, there, there are a lot of people stand to make a lot of money from this and are profiteering... From other people's misery and the war on terror is that
0: but thanks to people like you raising awareness getting people's minds changed to the reality of how the world really works hopefully enough people you know there'll be a tipping point in society at some point because it's happened with the war on drugs i think there's a tipping point in society now where all that's getting reversed
1: i I think i believe so i believe it will because there's there's lots of things that are joining in now there's the arts there's the film world there's the book world the, the literary world all of these places, the uh, indeed academia and elsewhere, where people are making a pushback and and challenging the statistics, challenging the figures, challenging the success rates of of all of these various uh, uh, programs, counterterrorism programs, uh, counter-extremism, prevent and all of this stuff and asking the real question, are we safer now than when you began these laws and wars on terror 20 years ago? If not, will you accept that everything that you have done has been a failure? And if it's a failure, what about your your cost-effective management and looking at this, you know, just as a business model? Like, you failed and failed and failed and failed and made the world worse. You started off with Al-Qaeda, a small organization, and you come up with an, ISIS, an organization called ISIS, which has, like, tens of thousands joining it, and globally talk. How is that success? How come everything that you have done made it worse? So um, just from a business model and say, you know, to say... Tell the people where where all their money has gone, and what you spent it on, uh, uh, and um, so of course that's not happening, is it? It's, they're not going to do that. So it's up to people like us to to make others ask those questions of people in power.
0: And so many parallels with the war on drugs. America spent two trillion dollars on a war on drugs, and there's more drugs available than ever before anywhere in the world it's everywhere even in supermax prisons highest concentrate levels more people in prison than ever before fentanyl is out there legal highs two trillion when you see the words war on think war on taxpayers wallets (laughs) halliburton contracts private prisons Oh, man, it makes me When wonder. I was in
1: Belmarsh, they put me onto a block uh, where, the, where there's mostly people affected by drugs, either taking drugs or dealing drugs and so forth. So you can see that, you know, it's like a pandemic here in, in Britain. It's a, it's a massive, it's massive. And I only know that just from that short experience there, let
0: alone um, what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. mozam well, you've come on and... Absolutely mind-blowing what you've been through. And I'm sure the audience are as gripped as I am right now. I could speak to you all day. How can we support you, the people watching this? All your links will be in the description box.
1: Yes, so I work for an organization called CAGE, as I I said earlier on, that we campaign against Guantanamo and the war on terrorism in general. Uh, You can go to cage.ngo and see our work there. You can follow us on on, uh, um, with CAGE on Instagram, uh, on (coughs) ukcage at UK Cage on Twitter uh, and on Facebook, just Cage. And my own stuff is, is again, Mazenbeg. You can just do a search on it on uh, Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. It's the same name.
0: So if people want to send you a message, do you have a preferred platform that you're most active on?
1: Um, anyone will do. Uh, Twitter or, or, or Facebook or anyone will do.
0: Okay. So there you have it. All the links are going to be in the description box. Really hope you've enjoyed this. Would love to get on. Possibly some of the other people you've mentioned today. The you know the, the guy who smiles more than you, perhaps. <laughs> um, so yeah, let us know in the comments what you've thought. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom corner of the screen, and huge thank you to people who've gone down into the description box and supported all of our links. They're all right down there. So before we conclude, that, I'll show you the Arizona prison handshake. So that's that, yeah, and then that and then when you bump fist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you wanna give us a hug? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh cheers man, brilliant. So, Thank you been, very that's, much. That's been really, really nice.